0: Looked at your picture just to get me started. Hey! Cats and kittens! Welcome to another episode of The Debrief! Yes, we have a little bit hustle. (laughs) A little bit of a departure from our normal intro music because it is what would be the late, great Luther Vandross 70th. 72nd birthday today so would not bring a little spirit one of the best songs of all time get her in there because boy oh boy has some people kind of lost their minds today i'm gonna inject a little positivity back into the timeline and uh open it up you know i we didn't have an episode this week we had a cancellation and instead of scrambling i said to myself you know what brianna this podcast hasn't even been going for three years and you have over 300 episodes. I saw some other podcasts that's been around for like five or 10 years. That was just at the 300, uh, mark. And I said, it's okay for you just to unlock an episode today and, um, open up this space to talk about whatever anybody wants to talk about. I put some suggestions, obviously in the headline. um, uh, there's been this new news out of Cop City where what many people have been saying for a long time has been validated by this new autopsy data, uh, wherein this uh, activist who was slain was killed, I think shot 57 times according to the new autopsy report. 57 bullet holes were found on the climate activist Manuel Tehran. Um, we covered the story, obviously. I think it was maybe January or February, maybe early February. It's really worth getting a guest back on to do a follow-up. This bigger story about the hyper-criminalization of protest movements is one that we really have to keep our eye on. I know that the kind of fictionalized version of how to blow up a timeline movie just came out. Um, and I'd love to do a follow-up with either the people from that film or Andrea's mom, the author of the book. It's such an important issue. Um, So there's that. There also is the fact that today is the D-Day for Elon Musk getting rid of uh, all of the blue checks. If you listen to Rising, you know that I have been subscribing to uh, Twitter Blue for a long time and had no plans to stop. I, as a content creator, bought it back in 2001, shortly after starting this podcast uh, for the purpose of being able to post longer form videos. I don't really post very long videos very often, but it helps the editor not to have to make sure every phrase, every, you know, clippable part of an episode is exactly 220 seconds. It just makes the editing process a lot easier not have to spend, you know, an hour making that two minute and 40 <laughs> second clip into a two, two minute and 20 second clip. Um, and so it makes, since on my end, of course, I respect the opinion of people who had never paid and don't want to start paying now. It seems like a silly thing to pay for just for the privilege of having um, a check next to your name. But other people don't see it that, that way and um, tw- are tweeting from their iPhones <laughs> about how bad it is to be on Twitter, I guess, and to have a blue check, not seeing the irony in any of that. Um, I'm I'm a- with Cory Doctorow, who is tweeting about how consumption is in politics and You know, we as leftists understand how it is when uh, people like Candace Owens and the like say, oh, how can you be a socialist? You have an iPhone and you're typing from a laptop. But somehow many people on the left have chosen violence today and it's pretty ugly. I saw people fighting and Chris Smalls mentioned he tweeted, I think, a really important pushback to Joe Biden, who's claiming to be the biggest labor president of all time and and, and and Chris Malls is telling him, absolutely not. You crushed a labor strike. You've done nothing for us since I visited the White House and you gave us a pamphlet. And as he's kind of very boldly and courageously pushing back against the president of the United States as one of the most visible union activists in the country, there are people who are trying to give him a hard time about still having a blue check. So, um, you know, hashtag solidarity. I know that uh, we've been having a lot of really robust conversations on this show about uh the last few episodes whether it's the Clarence Thomas uh um, um, corruption scandal episode whether it's the transports debate uh episode um there is this new development with the don't say gay bill in Florida where as many activists anticipated it's now been extended up to age uh, uh 12th grade, rather. So this claim that it was about inappropriate teaching standards for small children, um, you know, people teaching little kids things that were not appropriate for their age level. That rationale has kind of gone out of the door unless you think that seniors in high school shouldn't uh, have any acknowledgement in the classroom that, you know, gay people exist. So that's, um, you know, a setback uh, and but potentially evidence that Ron DeSantis is getting over his skis somewhat. His poll numbers are down. Republicans have come out of the woodwork talking about how they think he needs to lay off this uh, six week abortion ban is another issue that's getting on the craw of many a re- Republican. Nancy Mace has been actually remarkably straightforward and confident in condemning that sort of thing, perhaps because she's speaking from her experience as someone who did experience sexual assault as a younger woman, but she has said very plainly that she doesn't support her Republican colleagues that are pushing for that sort of thing, and that 90% of Americans agree that we should basically have uh, Roe-slash-Casey-level abortion rights, and this is all absurd. She's problematic in a lot of other areas, but she's been remarkably steadfast on that particular one. So, you know, wh- whatever whatever floats your boat, uh, another part of this Elon story is that apparently um, he's lost... Several billion dollars, I want to say double-digit billion dollars over the last 24 hours, presumably because of some combination of the um, SpaceX explosion this morning, which we covered on Rising in real time. Um, And the fact that all of these shenanigans on Twitter are perhaps causing a lack of confidence among investors. Obviously, we all have been following the way that advertisers have been fleeing the platform. But I think an underdiscussed aspect of this is how his capricious behavior, changing the Twitter avatar to a dog, taking the W off of this outside of the building uh, in I guess it's in Palo Alto. It's in San Francisco or wherever the quarters are, um, you know, putting, you know, making 69ing jokes in NPR's uh, description on Twitter. Um, you know, it's it's this this sort of thing. It is not the kind of normal CEO behavior, and it seems to be causing investors to lose confidence, um, shareholders to lose confidence. And it's having a real financial impact on him. And an argument a lot of smart people have been making for a long time is that even if you disagree with the ways that Twitter was run beforehand, and I'm one of those people who was very critical of earlier Twitter and what I – Perceive, and a lot of you guys perceive to be shadow banning and algorithm changes that disadvantage the left probably as much or in similar ways as it has now been documented, it's been disadvantaging the right through the Twitter files, etc. You know, this has not helped. Um, and ultimately, a lot of smart people have been arguing that Elon Musk is going to end up back with the same policies that the previous owners used because it's been the market that's been dictating these things much more so than ideology. And maybe we're in a place where the culture war aligns more with the left. So it it feels like a more of a leftward swing, but it does really feel like Elon Musk is going to either have to take a big L on this investment or realize that if you want advertisers to come back, because that's the basis of your funding model, you're going to have to stop acting like a child and stop making this uh, site a place that people feel so hostile about. I'm sure you guys have seen the scandal about LeBron James, who said that he would not be paying for a blue check, but his blue check persisted, and people were accusing him of lying about whether or not he was going to pay. And it turns out that Elon Musk has now admitted in a tweet that he decided to pay out of pocket, as it were, (laughs) for some high-profile celebrities to keep their blue checks um, kind of against their will, which is weird. The whole thing is just... So deeply stupid. Um, let's hear what y'all have to say. <laughs> what do you think about it? We can talk about whatever's on your mind. Nathan, what's up with you this evening?
1: Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Awesome. So the the first thing the first thing I'm going to say is that that song by the the opening song reminded me of one uh, love. Uh, love train by the ojs
0: (laughs) i guess i can see that but you know luther famously said i started my career sounding like no one but luther (laughs) yeah well the reason why
1: i thought of that is because that song in it it was made during the cold war Mm -hmm. but it talked about all of these people from china america europe the soviet union coming together for
0: all my friends Up in Africa, yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. same
1: same thing with the song "Dancing in the Streets." Mm -hmm. I don't know that song too, but just that with a bunch of cities
0: and like people around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you ready for a brand new beat?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. we know. I don't know why I like those songs so much. I think it's because it just—it just feels good. It just feels like a good thing to do. I don't know why. It's just, there's something, there's something that feels wholesome about those kind of songs, where even though I'm generally a very realistic and not particularly generous person when it comes to <laughs> outcomes, you know, I kind of uh, pr- prepare for the worst and hope for the best usually. Mm-hmm. But, but but when I listen to those songs, I kind of feel like. I don't want to do that anymore.
0: (laughs) I hear that. I mean, I think music is amazing therapy. Part of why I'm so committed to my kind of running regime is not, I mean, you know, there's the running and the endorphins, but it's also a time when I'm not listening to podcasts. I'm listening to music Mm -hmm. and my running playlist is extremely eclectic. And what ties the songs together, it's like whatever gives me that endorphin boost. And definitely um, there's a lot of Luther on that, on that list. (laughs)
1: but but yes the there's there's two things that i, that I wanted to talk about I, I um so the first thing was i I think it was chris talked about what happened last week where the black man i, I can could you remind me with some of this with what some of the details were where he was just out and about during his normal day and then someone and 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 then he got shot by an elderly white guy
0: so this was this a sixteen year old kid actually yes. um who was sent to pick up his siblings from a neighbor's house. He got the address wrong. It was something like one, two, three cherry lane, but he went Mm -hmm. to one, two, three cherry street, which was a block over. And when he rang the doorbell, the owner shot him through the glass pane door. Mm -hmm. And then once he was on the ground, shot him again, at which point the kid was able to, I guess, crawl away and and he went to three other houses, three houses before he was able to get someone to get him medical assistance. By some miracle, the kid is alive and talking and is at home and has been able to give his side of the story. God knows what would be said if he weren't able to speak for himself. And the new news that came out, we covered this on Rising this morning, is that the gunman's grandson has come out saying that, He thinks his grandfather is a racist, Mm -hmm. that he has been known to say bigoted comments about gay people and black people and immigrants, et cetera, that this is neither here nor there. Certainly not everybody who watches Fox News feels this way or behave this way. For sure, it's the most popular news show in America, but happens to be a heavy Fox News watcher. And he feels like he's been influenced by a kind of paranoia that drove him to behave so erratically and be so reactive to a child ringing his doorbell. uh, Unexpected.
1: Yeah, and the, the reason why I thought of myself is because I, I use the bus a lot. Mm-hmm. And so And so, uh, unfortunately, it shouldn't be this way for safety reasons, but it is this way, um, that a lot of the bus stops are not well marked. So mm-hmm. I'll just be standing out on the sidewalk at a corner in someone's driveway or something like that. And And if you didn't have a bus map with you and you weren't familiar with it, you would probably think I was loitering. Mm -hmm. And of course I never feel as if I'm going to be shot or have the cops called on me because someone thinks I'm loitering when I'm actually just waiting for the bus. But of course I look like a white hipster. So it's not like there's a serious threat that someone's going to do it on me. But if I were, but if I were the same age, but I were black instead, I feel like there'd be a much greater chance that someone would mistake me as say loitering, or, for, or 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 something like that where they might, you know, get out a gun or something. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, I about? I mean,
0: I'm inclined to agree there's another story that just happened where a bunch of uh, black folks who were cheering their friend on who was running the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. had a bunch of police set up a barricade in front of them on the on the race on the race track line or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was a conversation. I don't know about the facts of that one, so I'm not going to make too many claims about that, but um, You know, part of what was so frustrating on Rising is that there's now been four of these stories, and not all of them have a race angle, right? Mm -hmm. So, after um, Ralph, I'm blocking his last name right now, but after the 16 year old um, was shot, there was a case last weekend where a group of young people who were out trying to get to their friend's house made a U turn in somebody's driveway, and someone came out of the house and shot at the car, killing one of the passengers in the car that young woman is dead because mm-hmm. this man came out and just randomly shot her. There was a third case. Let me make sure I get, this, get these right. There's a third case where a couple of teenage girls, high school girls who were carpooling hopped out of one car to get in their carpool car, realized when they sat down that it was the wrong car. Cause there was a man on the front seat. They immediately got out, got back into the original car and, The man gets out of his car and walks over to them. So they roll down the window to apologize for getting in the wrong car. And he pulls out a gun and shoots both of these girls. What? And one of them, I think, was less seriously injured, was grazed. The other one was shot and had just got out of surgery for her spleen and all these. She was shot in like the the abdomen twice, Mm -hmm. I believe. And then the fourth instance of these like mistake driven shootings. Although I think this one is a little less in the group, uh, involved a group of kids. This was in uh, North Carolina, I believe. A group of kids playing basketball. Basketball rolls into this guy's yard. He comes out and just starts shooting at people, and he ends up shooting the parents of a six year old girl. The parents survived, but were kind of seriously injured and went to the hospital. And the girl had a bullet graze her cheek. And, but, you know, there, but for the grace of God, you know. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's like the wild, wild west out here. And who knows, is this selection bias? Are we hearing these stories because the news has picked up on that? There's like a trend that they can tell a trend story they can tell. And these local news events otherwise wouldn't be getting national attention. Um, I haven't even brought up the one. There was that sweet 16 shooting in Alabama, I think, Mm -hmm. where something like 30 odd members of a sweet 16 party were shot and many of them died including the brother of the birthday girl. I mean, just horrific stuff happening out here, but that one wasn't one of these. Um, uh, You weren't where you were supposed to be. So I shot you cases. That was a little bit different, but yeah, it's, it's wild.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just always get the impression when I see those stories is that usually the people who do it, they just need to, they, they just need to go listen to some Luther, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Because, because I, I obviously I'm not going to say I was raised without any kind of racial bias or whatever like no one is but but as far as the actual stated beliefs I was raised with stories like the good samaritan the woman at the well and things like that and those are examples where Jesus just goes and helps someone who well or someone in a parable like like, like with the good samaritan goes and helps someone who would otherwise be considered undesirable or an outcast or something And, and Jesus or someone in the parable just does it because it's the right thing to do. And so that's kind of the ethos that I've been around. And, and whenever I see some of these stories, I'm thinking, you know, I think that's maybe one of the first things that that we need to acknowledge, which is that sometimes just being kind is the right thing to do rather than not the person you're being kind to is someone you like or not. Like they could be, they could be a Nazi, someone with a, uh, swastika tattoo or something. But if they fell down on the street and they needed help, I would just help them instinctively. Even though I know that they're even though I saw the tattoo, I would basically ignore it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean I
0: yeah, I mean there might be some people are gonna have some mixed feelings about uh about that one. But I, I do think I mean these cases are being lumped together, but you know, the last guy, the guy who shot the parents and the six year old, he was already um being uh He had been charged with a felony for beating up his girlfriend with a hammer. Um, He seemed, he did not uh, obtain his gun legally. He was a felon, so he wouldn't have been able to obtain the gun legally. That's a very different sort of case in terms of motive um, and background than someone like these home shooters, who appear, I believe, in both cases to have legal firearms. But seem to be acting on some stand your groundish premise where they believe they are entitled to just wantonly murder anybody who strays onto their property. Right. I saw, I think, in the New York Post, um, an article about how the first guy who shot uh, Ralph Yarrell, the sixteen-year-old boy, had a no solicitation sign, as though a no solicitation sign is a license to kill. It is not. So you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Race, like I said, is not doesn't really seem to be a factor. And uh, most of these, the woman who was killed in the turnaround driveway case was white mm-hmm. and the shooter was white. The cheerleaders killer, uh, sorry, shooter. They didn't die. Thankfully, the cheerleader shooter uh, is a Latino. The cheerleaders, I think one is white and one appears to be either mixed race or Afro Latina. I mean, her last name is Washington. So I'm going to go with half black, half white, right? <laughs> uh, based on what she looks like and her name being whatever it is, Washington. Um, and in the last case, the shooter is black and the family, uh, the parents and little girl were all white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all over the place and it's messy, but, you know, they all involve guns. So do with that what you will.
1: Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I used to be more pro-gun, but I've kind of wavered on that now and I don't really know what I believe. I'm still digging through it. Yeah. But that's but that's probably not, as we probably don't have time to litigate that here. The last thing I want to mention is that, I really kind of, there's something struck a nerve with me with, with the the East Palestine Mm -hmm. because I last year or sorry, this year, a couple of months ago, there was a fire up at at up at a natural gas facility up in the uh, um, cities, the twin cities in Minnesota. And a bunch of the toxic fumes went down to the city I live in, which is kind of in Mm. South central Minnesota. And I was just on the bus one day And I, and I had this kind of feeling like I wanted to throw up and it got Mm. so bad that I had to get off the bus, I had to get off the bus, go inside, eat some food, drink something. And I had to get back on the bus and I couldn't even go to work that day because I was being sick again, just getting back on the bus. That's, that's how bad it was. And that pollution was maybe a third or a quarter as bad as East Palestine. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what would have happened if it would have been an East Palestine level event. I might be dead right now because I have asthma, chronic asthma, so mm-hmm. I just can't be around those kind of pollutants. But I have personal experience with that, and I would not wish that on anyone. So the people who talk to the people who talk down to the East Palestine residents as if they deserved it because they voted for Trump—that's ridiculous. No, no one deserves to be poisoned. Ever. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, it's. I, I was a little disappointed to see not many, but a couple of comments in that vein under the video. And you know, I don't think those are members of our community who think in those right. sorts of terms. But um, that's a pretty that's a pretty dark way to look at the world. Um, mm-hmm. If you have any kind of human rights framework and understand or believe in the basic value of uh, human life, I just. I don't know how you could condemn an entire community, you know, children, apolitical people, mm-hmm. you know, animals, everybody to that kind of tragedy <laughs> simply because you disagreed about a voting choice. So I, I'm definitely with you there and I appreciate you calling in tonight.
1: Yes. And then <laughs> um, I was saying the, the just one brief thing, which is that I think maybe in the future, it'd be a good idea to focus more on the, kind of the everyday cost of pollution because there there's this, there's a stuff about climate change and raising average temperatures and, oh, and, I completely and, and more, agree. more disasters but 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 the story I told about you know nearly throwing up on the bus that has some real power for people who otherwise wouldn't believe
0: in climate change. I completely agree. I think I said this to David Wall as well the last time he was on the podcast that the parts of his book where he talks about like the millions of people who die from air pollution every year in like China and India uh, are so impactful because it's not this projection into the future about what might happen or what will happen. It, you, it's very it's a lot more difficult to look at someone in the face who says I am currently being impacted by pollution as opposed to climate change mm-hmm. uh, and tell them like to get over it or that it's not real or that they're imagining it. And talking about the economic consequences to farmers and fishermen and the like because of climate change today and talk about polluting communities. I mean, this East Palestine moment, I think, was a real opportunity for liberals to say, oh, you're mad about this. Conservatives are mad about this. You're saying Biden and Buttigieg are are doing a bad job here. I agree. Now let's talk Flint. Let's talk Jackson. Let's talk federal Mm -hmm. funding for all of the Americans who are living under these kinds of conditions. Um, And let's talk about the companies that are creating these conditions and why certain parts of our political family, um, I was going to say conservatives, but honestly, just corporate people on both sides of the aisle have been so acquiescent to tax cuts and subsidies and the light for those uh, industries that are causing so much harm. So I'm with you, Nathan, 100%. I think that's a a messaging pivot I definitely would endorse. I know that AOC introduced the Green New Deal in Congress today. I haven't had a moment to really look at what that means. I just kind of saw it on the timeline. And I'd be curious to know kind of what her plans are with that, how symbolic that is versus how substantive it is, Mm -hmm. and whether or not there's any of that kind of framing um, in that. Uh, but we'll have to talk about that in another episode. Thank you for calling in, Nathan.
1: Yep, keep the faith.
0: Keep the faith. Uh, I'm going to go to Neo. For those of you who are new, I do one from the front and then the randomly one from somewhere else in the queue. Uh, No fault at all of the first caller, but we are three minutes in and I've only spoken to one person. So if you're talking... And you see that we're at like fifteen minutes, consider that maybe you should kind of self censor and start to to wrap up, or mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to be a little bit more forceful because I'd love to get get through to some more people um so Nia, what's on your mind tonight?
2: How are you, Bree?
0: I'm doing well. How are you
2: i'm okay i I just started a new job recently um, so I'm kind of like in the middle of new job stress but mm. um What's it? It's been a bit. It's been a minute. I mean, uh, we met in person that like a couple of weeks ago. Or yeah. Yeah. Ago, yeah. At the Marianne yeah. launch event. Dude. um, Craziest weekend of my life. So crazy to meet you. And that <laughs> was like that was such a legendary time. So I just wanted to thank you for being so nice and so fun soft. to talk to. Like it was. No, I mean, really, it was like it was inspiring that weekend. So. Um, well, it was my it was
0: my pleasure. It was lovely to be there and to meet you as well. What's on your mind this evening?
2: Gosh, um, man, there's just so many things. I'm not really trying to take time with my stuff or political stuff tonight. I really just wanted to. I did, I wanted to be quick because you were mentioned in the times thing. Too. Well, I
0: didn't mean to peer pressure you out. I mean, you you're working in a comms capacity for Marianne, right?
2: No, no, I was gonna I was gonna not to be too out. Uh, out there about that but okay i'm, I was. Sorry. I'm I was. sorry i did to
0: blow up your that's, spot i was gonna of, ask you a little of bit of about, about how you think the campaign is going but i don't have to ask you that <laughs> oh no
2: that's okay that's that's a tough heart you know spot in my heart lately but it's okay so,
0: okay all right I'm all here. right i'll let that go but well, you know, if you don't have anything else in your mind um i'll go to the next caller but it's really nice to to hear from you
2: yeah i just wanted to say hi i hope you're doing well um it's great you know, hearing everybody talk and get to get to chat with you. So, have a great hey. night, okay? Thanks. You so much. too.
0: Good luck with the new job. Keep the faith.
2: Thanks.
3: Thanks so much.
0: All right, Grant S. What's on your mind tonight, Grant?
3: Can you uh,
0: unmute yourself? You got to press the little microphone button so that we can hear you. Ground control to Major Grant. All right, Grant, get back in the queue. If I see you back there, I will try you again. But I'm going to go to Savvy Sabs. What a pleasure to have you in the chat tonight. What's on your mind?
3: Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Greetings. I never get to call into anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I feel like oftentimes you're
0: like streaming and we're doing things at the same time. So it's such a pleasure to see you here. What's going on, Sabby?
3: It was also really great to have you on uh, Rising this week. Oh yeah, thanks so much. Um I wanted to call in because uh yesterday I actually covered uh RFK Jr's uh announcement on the ground.
0: I saw that and in Boston, I saw you live streaming it. What did you think about it?
3: I like I'll be honest, I was really surprised it was that many people there. Um I
0: heard it was we had a Weigel on who was also there to talk about it today on the show, Dave Weigel formerly of the Post, now of Semaphore. And he said it was a big room and there were a lot of people in there and they were very excited and that there were people from across the ideological spectrum and there were people who, you know, even though the media kept trying to uh, frame him exclusively as, you know, a quote-unquote anti-vax candidate who really valued his anti-war bona fides, his talk about uh, ending corruption and draining the swamp. I saw an amazing tweet thread from him actually acknowledging – how so many people claim to want to drain the swamp, but either because they're lying or because they end up getting captured when they enter politics, they failed to do so and why he was going to be different. It was very insightful. He talked about the president's ability to use executive orders and why Biden has failed in, in doing what he could do to help the American people. I mean, it seems like I know that people have the concerns about um the vaccine autism stuff, and I, I'm not trying to minimize that, but it seems like there's a lot to like and that people are biting. Is that the impression that you got?
3: Right. I think a lot of people really resonated with uh, the anti-war message uh, and the dream, the swamp message was a big one for people too. But the other thing that he did is he called out mainstream media mm-hmm. and he said that, you know, a lot of people don't trust the media anymore and I can't blame you. When he said like, they are, you know, spreading narratives that are not true about people and we need like a media to be truthful again. And so a lot of people, I think that message resonated with a lot of people too. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, like I'm, for me, I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, that I wish he was running as independent or third party, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm but um, what really kind of concerned me was that before I even got to the event, I got messages from people that told me be very careful because like of the message that he has they were very concerned that someone would try to hurt him mm. and because mm. he's a kennedy and they tend to have this history of unfortunate events mm. and while we were there an alarm went off while he was speaking and everyone just kind of froze and we're like what is happening and then there was an announcement over the intercom that said there's an emergency in this building and the first thing i thought was oh my gosh yeah. <laughs> Like not even, not even, but um, they told him to just go ahead and continue his speech. We never found out what that was, but I do wonder, you know, I really wonder if he's somewhat afraid, given the history, like what happened with his his father and what happened with his uncle.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of why he waited until this time in his life. I mean, not that you know, it's not tragic if someone who is you know a little bit older is is murdered. Um, But, you know, sometimes I I used to feel this way about Bernie that to the extent that folks could be threatened or blackmailed or, you know, people can make the claim that I'm going to ruin your career. I'm going to get you, kick you out of the Senate if you do X, Y, and Z. That if you're at the end of your career, there's generally speaking less to lose. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if that might have impacted the timing of this. But yeah, I really honestly hadn't considered the Kennedy legacy And whether or not he might be threatened in those sorts of ways, I just, I guess, kind of presumed that they would try to marginalize him the same way that they marginalized Bernie and marginalized Marianne and marginalized Jill Stein and all of that.
3: Right. Like that's that's one of the big concerns here, especially for those of us that live in Massachusetts. But I will say that there were there were three overflow rooms that were there for the people, I guess, that couldn't fit into the main room. Mm. But you did have to register for the event. So I don't but, know if maybe they were they full were people in the overflow rooms? I wasn't able to leave like once I was I was told that the people were in the rooms, but I couldn't go check out the rooms because I was in the area where the press was. Um, But it was I was surprised because, again, like I said, you had to register for this event. So what I'm assuming is maybe they oversold because they were afraid maybe some of the people that are going to come are going to be like, maybe Biden supporters and try to like heckle him or whatever, I that kind issues. of thing. And was there um, any of that? There was none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really interesting. Like everybody that was there was like cheering him on. And there was a mix of people. Like there were some people who were independents, some who were Democrats. There were a couple of people that were Republicans that were there. A couple of mm-hmm. people emailed me after that and said, look, I'm a Republican, but I'm going to support him. But one of the things that I noticed in reference to broadcast media Fox News was there, but I didn't mm-hmm. see MSNBC or CNN.
0: Yeah, we covered some of the media response. Erin Burnett did this segment, so they so it seemed like she's a MSNBC, I believe. They sent they had someone there doing interviews, and the question they kept putting to everyone was, "Do you does it bother you that quote even his family doesn't support him quote even his family isn't here." And the people they asked, at least per this clip, I think case study. Shout out to case study in the chat. Um, oh, he's saying that uh, Aaron was CNN. My bad, case he would know. <laughs> it was your clip. Um, mm-hmm. The people that she a- that the, the the guy on the ground asked did not seem to care, but it was clear that the the, the mainstream media seems to be going with two messages: one, anti-vax, and two you know, even the Kennedys, you know, to the extent that he's tr- he's hoping to capitalize on Kennedy goodwill, that even even the Kennedys don't support their brother, so you shouldn't support him either. I mean, do you think that's going to work? I mean, do you think that anybody in the room cared if, uh, I mean, because the, the point that Robbie made this morning was like the, all the Kennedys that we really cared about in terms of their political opinions are regrettably no longer with us. So do we really care if RK junior siblings don't support his presidential run. Some of whom, some of the Kennedy family works for the Biden administration also. So conflict of interest.
3: Right. Well, the Kennedy name here in Massachusetts, it's still a beloved name, but it's not as popular as it used to be. So for example, uh, Joseph Kennedy III, he ran against Ed mm-hmm. Markey and he was really shocked when he lost. And I, I could see it on his face. And I think he didn't realize that like, just because you're a Kennedy, that doesn't mean you're a shoo And then he looks like a Kennedy
0: concentrate. Like they took a Kennedy, they dried him out in the sun, they ground him into a fine powder, (laughs) (laughs) and they concentrated it and distilled it down into the most intense form of Kennedy. And that's what that man looks like. That man looks more like, like he doesn't look like JFK, but he looks more like the idea of JFK than JFK does.
3: (laughs) He, um people were not happy that he chose to to challenge Ed Markey. And mm-hmm. so Ed Markey was able to get a lot of young voters to come out and support him. And that's what really helped him win. Uh, but yeah, he was kind of running to, he said he was progressive, but he was actually running to the right of Ed Markey. Like mm-hmm. he was against legalizing marijuana, like those types of things that a lot of particularly younger people and older people actually do care about. And that message did not work well for him, but that was like a big deal here when yeah. he lost ed markey it was all over local news they're like oh my god it's the first time a kennedy has lost since yada 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 he's the first one to do it i wonder how he feels so mm-hmm. yeah i don't think that name is it carries as much weight as it used to
0: yeah i remember he did that whole um he reversed he the uh don't ask what your country would do for you ask what you could do for your country and he was like that's stupid and i was like thank you for saying that because i've always felt like that was stupid <laughs> she be asking what your country should do for you. That's why you're giving them your tax dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember that was very exciting um, when when Marky managed to defeat him. That was that was a great a great Massachusetts moment. So you're feeling? How are you feeling? I, let me ask you this, Sadie. I asked Dave Weigel this. We didn't really have much time to get into it on Rising, but what do you make of the fact? I mean, you said that you would prefer to that he be running as an independent. Um, What do you make of the fact that he doesn't seem to have gotten as much pushback as Marianne for running as a Democrat, even though he's really emphasizing, you know, if you go to his website, it's like big, bold letters. I'm a Kennedy Democrat.
3: I think a big part of it is the anti-war message. Mm -hmm. That's a big one from some of the people that I talked to. That was the big one that that was the consensus that it seemed like everyone that I talked to had the fact that they were like, yes, he's anti-war. And I was like, well, what about this, this and that? And they're just like yeah, but he's running on anti-war and that's what I really care about and what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a message that can, you can win over people that are independents, Republicans, and some that are Democrats as well. And I think he's going to have more of a, a wider, uh, a a range and a wider appeal. I will say his response in reference to the Russia-Ukraine war, I really felt like that was a decent response Mm
4: -hmm.
3: is that, you know, we don't, we we do feel bad for what's happening to people in ukraine but at the same time he's like we have to stop calling people nazis and start call and stop calling people putin puppets at the same time he said this is just getting ridiculous basically so he said his goal is to bring people together and i was like you know, this, this really makes a lot of sense. So I think like what he said, it really resonated with a lot of people. Now I will say if I get the chance to talk to him, I would suggest to him to please shorten that speech. That speech was incredibly long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I have not watched it because I saw that. I mean, I saw you live streaming and I caught, um, a little bit of it. Um, we were obviously, um, recording also for most of it, but, uh, I did. It did strike me because I went to Marianne's and hers was like tw- like maybe fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. <laughs> um, and they hit on some of the same themes. I will say, like the, I think that both of them are very strong on the corporate corruption. But I completely agree with you that what really makes um, RFK's sing. And I'm trying to pull up his website right now. I don't know why I can't find it. It's like RFK 2024. Anyway, I was reading from it on Rising either today or yesterday, and his section on Ukraine is really good. Mm. And people forget that he is an environmental lawyer, and all of that was really good. Um, and you're right. he's really He really understands, I think, where the public is on this issue in a way that Marianne either doesn't or just simply doesn't agree with and for people who are wanting an outsider candidate i think i agree that the reason why there's more less pushback i should say against rfk jr running as a democrat than marianne is because even though i i think that Marianne did a good job of being adversarial in her opening speech she has this history of saying things that are not especially adversarial and rfk jr is coming in like we're gonna take we're gonna tear down the cia because they killed my dad like you can't get much more adversarial than saying we gotta we gotta dismantle the part of the government that has literally been murdering my family for yeah. decades.
3: And revolutionary leaders and people like MLK yeah. and Malcolm X and Fred Hampton. So we really want someone to we really need someone to to make that kind of statement and not be afraid to do so. And it seems like to me, he just doesn't seem to be fearful. Um and I think I think we're more afraid for him than he is, like to be honest. But I think that he has a good message. I don't agree with him on all of all of his policies that he has, but I think so far he does have a good message. And I think he might be the candidate to bring people together across political ideologies because of his anti-war message. Uh But I, I, I will say, like, if I get the opportunity to talk to him, I will tell him, like, you know, you need <laughs> you know, you need to run as independent. Right. You know, the DNC and- is going to screw you over. You know, they're going to do this. But.
0: Yeah, I mean we'll see what I mean I, we don't have to wait and see. We know they're going to try. I am kind of heartened by that 14% poll number right out of the gate. The number of people I see who saying I'm an independent or I'm a non-voter or you know i'm a i'm a disaffected democrat but i'm gonna start voting again i'm gonna change my registration i'm gonna cross the aisle to vote for rfk i thought that maybe it would be difficult for him to thread the needle of like trading kind of on the kennedy name and coming off as someone who was adversarial but he seems to be doing it very well it seems like this long legacy of being adversarial because of his environmental activism and because of his anti-war activism has led him a lot of credibility in the space so that the idea of like putting kennedy across your website it's just not as impactful to people as the, the licks he's already taken to stand for what he believes in. And it, it seems to be working. Um, right. Here's what he said on his website, by the way, about Ukraine. Uh, this is in a section called bring it home. Uh, he says as president RF, this is obviously not written in the first person as president RF uh, Robert F Kennedy Jr. will start the process of unwinding empire uh, we will bring the troops home. We will stop racking up unpayable debt to fight one war after another. The military will return to its proper role of defending the homeland. We will end the proxy wars, bombing campaigns, covert operations, coups, paramilitaries, and everything else that has become so normal. Most people don't know what's happening, but it is happening. A constant drain on our strength. It's time to come home and restore this country. In Ukraine, the most important priority is to end the suffering of the Ukrainian people, victims of a brutal Russian invasion and also victims of American geopolitical machinations going back to at least 2014. Diplomacy has never really been tried. We will offer to withdraw our troops and nuclear-capable missiles from Russia's borders. Russia will withdraw its troops from Ukraine and guarantee its freedom and independence. I don't know that he can really claim that Russia is going to do that, but I appreciate the sentiment. UN peacekeepers keepers will grant, uh, guarantee peace to the Russian-speaking eastern regions. We'll put an end to this war. We'll put an end to the suffering of the Ukrainian people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, what do you
3: I mean? it Yeah, I, I mean, it, it makes more sense. And I'm, I'm wondering your take. Like, do you think that Joe Biden's going to have to respond to him because he's polling at like 14% so far.
0: I think it's going to have to respond because it's harder to laugh at a Kennedy than it is to Marianne Williamson at, at Miriam Williamson. And it's harder to ignore him because he look, he has a bigger platform immediately. I don't know if Marianne tried to get on Tucker and he wasn't interested or if she didn't try, like, I don't know what, but all I know is that Kennedy announced it sounds like his room was bigger than Marion's. Marion's room was full, but it doesn't sound like it was as big as his, and I don't think there were any overflow rooms. It sounds like he had a big organic crowd. He immediately went on Tucker Carlson, the biggest show in late night last night. It seems like he's gonna have Tucker's support through this. Tucker welcomed him to come back on the show again. I anticipate that it'll go on Rogan. Seems like an easy path for him there. And it's gonna be I don't think that the the that Jean, Karine Jean-Pierre is gonna be chuckling about crystals and cuckoo ness with RFK the way that she did about Marianne. Now, it's going to be anti-vax, anti-vax, anti-vax. Yep. It's going to be that. But the question is, does the, does the Democratic Party, in the eyes of many voters, have the credibility to be talking about vaccine misinformation with respect to autism and vaccines if it is perceived as having gotten so much wrong about COVID?
3: That's right. And I think that uh, MSNBC and CNN are making a mistake by not interviewing him, because I feel like if you're going to smear them, at least invite him on for the discussion, because mm-hmm. now like he's going on to Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has a larger audience. Mm-hmm. So he's getting across to a lot of people. And then people are, I think the viewers at home, some of them are able to see this, that like, okay, we see he's coming on to Fox News. He's being invited on there. I also see that they're smearing him on CNN and MSNBC, but I don't see them inviting him on. Mm -hmm. So I think people, I think the American people are making that connection for the most part, but I think it's a mistake to ignore him because I remember they tried to do this to Bernie for like part of the, the 2020 campaign. They did this period where they tried to ignore Bernie Sanders, but then Bernie just continued to become more and more popular Mm -hmm. even though they were ignoring him. So I think, I think that's a mistake. I think they need to have this discussion with him in person. I think that's only fair.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, when you, when I was, it's so funny when I was, when it was 2016 and I was not in politics, I watched Bernie getting attacked and I saw him rising despite that, and there was something that was so, like, enjoyable about that. But there was something that was so gratifying, and I it felt like being in a in the, in the trenches in 2020, feeling like there was some responsibility being a part of the campaign. I felt less confident making the kind, you know, saying, "Oh, he should." Not that anybody was listening to me at all on the campaign, but I would have felt less confident making. Decisions like, oh, okay, Bernie, take this risk because the blood was would be on my hands if it didn't work. So I can't, I can't tell if it's me not being a part of RFK's campaign that makes me want want to tell him burn it all down. And and, and <laughs> you know, we laugh at your tears and <laughs> you know, um, uh, what what is the what is the thing that Bernie always says, um, about like you know you're in it, you know, uh, I I relish the fact that you're coming against me if the FDR quote or whatever it is. Like I, I can't tell if it's just that I'm outside of it so I can want, want him to go like scorched earth or if it's it's just I see him as more of a scorched earth candidate and that it's coming more organically to him. But it, I do have the feeling. I do, My sensibility is that what he's doing is working. He should keep doing it and that he might be able to have a better result and that maybe he's the kind of person who would be willing to do a dirty break. Um, because he does have this appeal, perhaps even more so than Bernie across the aisle. And what on earth would they do if he actually, at the end of the Democratic primary, that he would lose, you know, would, would likely, you know, all things being equal, lose, went ahead and said, I'm running third party anyway. I mean, that's the point at which I would start be start getting worried <laughs> oof, about him getting the Kennedy treatment, if you know what I mean.
3: And I think if he does uh, build up that base, I, my sincere hope is that even you know, when he does, because he's he's not going to win the primary, at least my prediction, he won't. But mm-hmm. when he does lose the primary, he doesn't tell people to just go ahead and vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. My, my hope for him is that he would take the people that he's brought together uh, in his movement and continue that movement on even after the election. And I think that's how we're going to really build like some type of a, a strong grassroots movement in this country is like, We had we had that with Bernie Sanders. Like we had the numbers. We really did. We had the numbers to have a mass movement across this country. But after the election ended, it was just like. No one knew what to do. I feel like the movement just kind of died because Bernie went back to just being a politician. And I think that whoever if if you're going to run on that kind of message like RFK Jr.'s running on, I sincerely hope that he continues that message, even if he does not win. I I
0: hope that as well. I mean it's just from a pure messaging standpoint. There was a thread I'm trying to find it where he was so lit on Twitter the other day. <laughs> um he sounded I mean he sounded like supercharged Bernie. He he sounded like twenty sixteen, I have nothing to lose, Bernie. But like more aggressive. It was about um It was such a strong anti... Oh, here it is, here it is. He said this was on April 19th, yesterday, I guess. He said, most people who get into political office run on the same platform and say they're going to, quote, drain the swamp. And I think most of them believe it. They're going to clean up corruption and rein in these agencies. Most of them say that honestly, and I believe that in most cases, they're earnest about it. Then they get into office and they become paralyzed. Some of them become co-opted by the corporations that help them get elected. For most of these changes, you don't need congressional support. The president can do it himself, but they never do because they don't understand the agencies. As Benjamin Franklin observed, if human beings were angels, we wouldn't need a regulation. And the problem is that they aren't. And regulatory agencies need to be on the side of the small businesses, the American public, and the children's house rather than the multinational corporations who want to subjugate and uh, uh, commoditize us. I think there's a little bit of typo there, but that's okay. We're not going to get them on that. So, like, I mean, him saying he's willing to use executive orders, him acknowledging that, like, the drain the swamp stuff is the right message, but people are either hypocritical or become too captured to actually follow through on it. I mean, he's identifying the problem with the passion and kind of, like. Energy of Trump, but the specificity of uh, Bernie Sanders. Someone, like, if you're an environmental lawyer, you understand agency capture and the regulatory issues probably than any other sector, better than any other sector, because that is your bread and butter. Like, you, environmental law is like an agency law. Like, you're dealing with nothing but, I mean, all these massive agencies that were created under Nixon to deal with these environmental problems, and you understand exactly why it is we have the backlogs that we do in environmental law, why we have the back and forth, the ups and downs, the one step forward, two steps back. You understand exactly what corporate corporate influence could could do, and and you you have a very good understanding of how government works through an environmental law lens. And this man taught at Pace for like thirty years. People are acting like he just crawled out of a gutter somewhere.
3: <laughs> no, it's true, and I think also too the environmentalists like himself they understand the connection between war and climate change. Mm-hmm. They understand it. They make that connection. And I think that's really important. Um, he also made a joke too. He said that uh he was censored for 18 years and he mm-hmm. said, that's why his speech is going to be long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God bless him. I mean, like we'll see,
0: we'll see what happens. I mean, he, he's a little, he's a little rough around the edges, you know, and I think that people say things, And the media will run with them. And I think that Bernie had amazing message discipline. And so as much as they came for him, there was only so much people could yell at Bernie about because he only really said four things over and over again for 40 years. God bless him. (laughs) And so we'll see what happens with RFK. You know, he lets some stuff come out of his mouth every now and again that could create some media cycles. But my feeling is that there is a significant number of people, maybe not enough to win, but a good chunk of people who – are so disaffected and are so drawn in by the good things that he has to say that they're going to let a lot slide, whether it's the kind of weird, cringy Holocaust statement that he made at the anti-war rally or this uh, anti-vax stuff or whatever it is. And, you know, everybody says cringe things. Joe Biden wrote the crime bill. So I'm not going to sit here and moralize (laughs) about someone willing to overlook the vaccine autism stuff when Jim Crow Joe is over here running the country. I just, I don't have that
3: in me. That's right. That's a good point. Well, thank you so much, Bree.
0: Thank you for joining. This was such a delight, Sabby. Bye. Keep the faith. All right. Orson, what's on your mind tonight?
5: Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm a big fan of your show and um, I I was listening to your last several episodes and uh, I have some thoughts on those and um, before I um uh talk to you about that. I was wondering if um I could tell you a little bit about the uh activism I do. Um you brought up music at the beginning and I, I organize um events um not far from DC in a at a prominent opera festival hmm. where I uh I organize um music and um human rights activists and environmental activists and artists and musicians collaborate on a program, we call it a time to break silence. So that's actually um, comes from a song cycle of the the speeches and writings of Martin Luther King set to Mm. music. And, um, you know, his speech about Vietnam, a time to break silence. So um, we've had um, a variety of issues. And I was wondering if there's a way I could um, get in touch with you and uh, talk about some kind of collaboration uh, of speakers or, you know, raising awareness about some of these issues if you'd be interested in, in advising on that in some way or speaking or something like that.
0: I will be honest with you about my generalized feelings of overwhelm. I'm currently ignoring my high school friend, Iman shout out to Iman who wants me to hang out with her tomorrow and has called and texted me multiple times over the last two days, not because I don't love her and enjoy her company, but because I said this to someone today and my family I don't know that I have the bandwidth or friendship, <laughs> which is a tragic state of affairs, but I do want you to write to me. You're here in D.C., so let's see if we can make something work. Um, can you write to the uh, Bad Faith email, which is uh, – I think it's just badfaith at com. Let me double check.
5: Is that, okay, but go yeah. ahead and keep
0: talking, and I'll, and I'll double check while you're talking.
5: Okay. That would be great. Yeah. Um yeah, um, I could just uh you know send you the events we're doing and um keep in touch and in, in somewhere we can meet in DC or if you if you have any event you're speaking at in DC, I'd be happy to come to that. Um
0: uh, badfaithpodcast at gmail.com dot com.
5: Badfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, got it. Yeah, thank you. Um yeah, I'll send it to you from so it's called the Castleton Festival. It was founded by um my father who's a uh classical musician and mm. um he, he's not alive anymore but um there's been a lot of many prominent artists here and um but there's also a variety of genres all types of different music um so um bad podcast at gmail.com okay so i will um, email you from my castleton festival email address um and look forward to getting in touch with you thank you and so yeah i have um i really enjoyed the last several um uh, podcast you did and um i was thinking about i mean the, the east palestine or east east palestine um story and the mm-hmm. the interview with the the resident who was who was in tears and as you said mm-hmm. really showed a lot of solidarity for um a lot of other people in the situation that don't even get any media coverage and how she wanted to prevent this from happening to other people and um, and then I was thinking about your comment that, you know, why doesn't the Biden administration do more for this? Because, you know, it would the optics would look good. You know, it would be in their own interest to do more for this. And then then you brought up, well, this could be this like cynical calculation that maybe if they just offered Medicare for all for all of those people. Well, you know, then the, the, the left is just going to demand more and more. And I, I think that that's behind a lot of the resistance to bring about change because they worry if they, if they give people a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, it's just going to, they're going to demand more and more, you know? And so they, they try to give people as little as possible because, you know, then they won't have to, you know, um, to be accountable to, to give any more. So, and then I was also thinking about that in relation to environmental racism. And I was listening to a podcast earlier this year. Um, it's called the environmental justice lab, with Dr. Leslie Joseph. And there's, there's, I mean, so many issues with environmental racism and, um, you know, people living in um, Cancer Alley and in these um, uh, sacrifice zones and people living, you know, with um, losing their house, their, the value of their homes, like people, mm-hmm. um, whether it's like waste from factory farm, hog farms or from, you know, other uh, pollutants that, you know, they they don't get compensated for the loss of value of their home or for their, all the health, getting cancer or other asthma, other health conditions. So I think that that's another issue. If they would address the East Palestine issue, um, I think that they would be under a lot of pressure to address the entire environmental, environmental racism issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, they don't want to open up that because, you know, then there's Steve Donziger and there's international issues mm-hmm. of environmental racism. And I think they don't want to address this issue, mm-hmm. um, even though it would look good for them, because then they would have to address all these other issues. You
0: know, What I'm about to say is going to sound a little out there. I confess I had a gin martini. But I feel like this a little bit when we're talking about um, the origin of the pandemic, how... It feels like the desire to not entertain lab leak or think that there was anything other than kind of a natural zoonotic origin is partly because the cost of this pandemic has been so high. The liability is so incalculable that they simply cannot allow anyone to consider whether anyone was actually at fault and i feel the same way about a lot of these environmental crimes where if we start to pick at the scab if we open the pandora's box of people actually being held accountable for the externalities that all of this you know pollution and waste and uh, carbon monoxide and all the rest is causing then it would basically bankrupt entire in- industries and put half of the markets to, de- to, to death and then that's why they just they they cannot go there. They will not go there. The risks are too high, and they'll do anything to stop it. Which is why we're seeing all of these laws that give you a nine year sentence for protesting a pipeline being built and all of this stuff because the stakes are so high that we'll use whatever means is available to stop us from knowing, from stop us from knowing the the origins of COVID, to stop us from from understanding, um, from actually uh, starting to hold people accountable for environmental harms. And that's why they did what they did to Steven Donziger because the fact of him winning that unprecedentedly large judgment that like they had, they had to draw a line in the sand. They just could not let that stand. They could not, they could not open that Pandora's box.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, Steve Donziger saying that there's a lot of other oil spills and this this happens a lot more frequently than people realize in other Mm -hmm. places. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, the, there's a scandal going on with um, Jody Friedman, the Harvard environmental law professor who is, has this relationship where she's being paid, what, like $300,000 a year by ConocoPhillips, who, of course, are behind the Arctic drilling de- deal that Biden just approved. Um, and and uh, she was my environmental law professor. <laughs> And she left at the end of the year. She taught me to go and work for the Obama administration. That was like 2008, 2009. It was my one year. I think it was the first elective that I had and I took environmental law. And that was also when the Deepwater Horizon uh, spill happened in the Gulf, which at the time seemed like one of the worst environmental catastrophes in human history. Like a, an unprecedented number of gallons of oil was being spilled into the Gulf of Mexico every hour, every day. And I remember sitting in class with a sense of existential dread that with every second ticking by, more oil was being spilled than, than had ever been spilled before. And it felt so, so appropriate that I was in this class at this time. And I felt so lucky to be learning about this stuff. And my mind was being blown by the realities of our administrative state. And now it's like that didn't even happen. And no one ever talks about it. Like people talk about the Exxon uh, Valdez spill more than they talk about the deep water horizon spill. I feel like it's just like it got like memory hold. And now my law professor who is speaking so passionately about all of that is on the payroll of ConocoPhillips.
5: Hmm. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it's a little bleak, but it's going to be okay. We're on, we're on it. It's going to be okay. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're, I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like we're all building to something. I've been really glad to listen to some of the coverage of the how to blow Up a pipeline movie, uh, both on useful idiots and on chapel trap house. Um, I can't wait to see it. I'd love to talk to some of the people involved or for, or to Andrea's mom. It really does feel like we're at a tipping point with this environmental stuff. And I completely agree with the earlier caller that also highlighting the kind of now effects of pollution and the like is a really effective political tool. So, I appreciate you calling in, Orson.
5: Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Keep the faith.
5: Yes. Keep the faith.
0: Let's go back to this back of the line area and call on Anthony McQueen. How are you doing tonight, Anthony?
6: I am good. Can you hear me?
0: Loud and clear. What's in your mind tonight?
6: Um I'm gonna be cliche and talk about gun control, but first, because I've had a couple sips of eighteen eighty eight. Oh, I can't help. <laughs>
0: I got a partner in crime tonight. <laughs> I
6: know. I, know. Uh, I can't help but point out that you know you've been talking about um, the presidential nominees and uh, and I'm like blanking on his name now. What's this? What's the uh, the primary candidate? Democratic primary candidate?
3: RFK Junior. Yeah, yeah.
6: Uh, you've been talking about you know. He's got a checkered past. He's a little rough around the edges. Um, he's a little kooky on things like vaccines, etc. But you know, put his sins in balance against um, our current president Biden, and you know it clearly comes out on top. And you think that people see that, and they're willing to look past some of the problems um, for the 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 whole right. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Democrats taught us how to do that. And mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is people going, yep, right. Sure. Huh? Makes sense. Of course. Uh, but I can't help notice what I'm not hearing is like, Brian J. Gray is a stand for <laughs> RFK Jr. Uh, that you're covering for your friend that you're secretly, <laughs> you know, on the campaign for this person <laughs> that, uh, you don't care about kids dying of vaccines that you don't take it seriously enough. That
0: you well, actually- I'm sure I am going to
6: get that soon.
0: I'm sure that it's only a matter of time before I am, I'm, I'm accused of being indifferent to the kids that have died of meningitis because people are afraid to take vaccines in California. I'm sure that's just a mo- matter of time. In all fairness, I do have a relationship with Marianne Williamson. I, I am friends. I've never met JFK Jr. I'm, I'm friends with Marianne. I mean, Maybe that's presumptuous of me to say, but I'm friendly, I'm very friendly with Marianne Williams. And we live in the same city. We have gone to dinner many times, you know. So, like, I don't, I don't begrudge people for wanting to question my judgment, but I've tried to be very honest and open about that. And I think, even frankly, in ways that have sometimes made my friendship difficult, been very willing to be critical of Marianne and of her positions, especially with respect to foreign policy. And I'm, I'm just trying to be as, my only solution, I can't undo my friendship with Marianne. All I can do is be honest about what it is and let people judge for themselves. So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't blame people for having some skepticism about my Marianne coverage, but it is also true that, you know, I think that, that RFK and I have told this to Marianne, I think that RFK is doing some things in the foreign policy realm that are absolutely correct. And that Marianne would be faring better in the polls if she were also willing to do.
6: Yeah, well, I think your analysis of the two seems to be relatively the same, right? Or, uh, I don't have a dog in the fight. I vote green, so I'll move yeah. on to <laughs> um, Yeah. So, you know, one thing I noticed, you had a really, really good point when you brought up uh, today with Robbie that, um, you know, and that having um, a deep dive on the motivations for some of these shootings – um, doesn't necessarily suggest that their motivation is somehow systemic and that all of these shootings are related to the same motivation. And mm-hmm. it's just as reasonable to criticize someone's racism as, as it is to criticize another person's, or at least look into another person's uh, violent history. You mm-hmm. um, seem to shrug that off, but I think that's a really important point. I, I think what's even more important is the only similarity between all of these is obviously ease of access to weapons that can kill people very easily and indiscriminately, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes not even the intended target, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I just couldn't help but reflect on this British comedy I was watching. Um, The name, I can't remember, but it's like a bunch of kids that had issues and adults that had issues and, and they're doing community service and they're like rebuilding some community service place. It might be called community service, I don't know. Uh, it was on one of these streaming channels, and in one scene, um, a bad guy, like, holds up one of the the, the female leads mm-hmm. with a knife, and she's, like, scared and all that stuff, uh, in a similar way that we would be if someone's holding up with a gun. And I've seen this in, in British and other comedies before where, you know, there's these, like, knife holdups. Um, what was interesting, though, is you know, five other people came along and, and said, you know, you're not going to get... To her, without coming through us, and obviously, you know, the the lone guy with a knife is not going to take on six people, even maybe three people mm-hmm. with that knife. Wait, is this the uh, show
0: where they all get superpowers?
6: No, it's not like a misfits. or No, they don't get superpowers. Uh, it's just like a it's like a character comedy. It's actually really good. I I wish I remember the name of it because is it Skins? Like it.
0: Maybe. Okay. Skins? Skins. Someone in the chat suggested it was skins. It's not important, but I, 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 can't, I, I obviously get your point. Yeah, you know, that that's the argument. Look, I think that I look. I'm very much a proponent of gun reform. At the same time, I think that there is something kind of culturally that's happening where it's not a hundred percent about guns, and people make this point about how America has a lot of like knifings and other kinds of violence and you know people will find a way but the, at the end of the day nothing can kill as many people as quickly as a weapon that was designed to kill a lot of people quickly
6: well you're also not going to you know go through your front door glass with a knife or right. a right yeah he's with like an
0: 82 knife, year old so. man or something against a 16 year old yeah, kid i'd like exactly. to see those odds without a gun involved
6: right you're not going to like throw knives out into your yard at people playing basketball and hit many of them like it's just right it's not, it's it's an obvious difference. And I'm, I've never been, you know, I've been raised in North Carolina. I've been raised in the country part. I don't live there now, but um, I'm not entirely opposed to all guns in some scenarios, like Mm state action, whatever for hunting and checking them out and et cetera, whatever, whatever. Like, but you know, what we've adopted in this country is obviously ridiculous. And it seems like at this point, just bringing it up, People are like, that. when are we going to stop talking about that? Well, maybe when people stop mowing other people down, right?
0: Yeah, it's just so scary that people don't. I mean, when you see this kind of this arc of stories, how your reaction can just be like, well, I'm going to be safe. Something like that couldn't happen to me. Like, really? Right. Folks are just randomly shooting up schools. That guy just shot up a bank. People are shooting up their neighborhoods. I mean, I I don't want to indulge in a kind of fear-mongering that is disproportionate to people's actual risk, right? Like, at at the end of the day, a lot of these stories are only getting surfaced on a national level because they seem to be part of a trend that makes for a good national story. And that every day people are killed and violence happens all over the world, not just in America. And we don't see it as something that is particularly indicative of the world getting worse or ourselves being in greater amounts of danger, But, like, also, we know statistically that this stuff does happen a lot. And there does seem to be an escalation of these kinds of – NPR had a story that I referenced today about how there does seem to be a growing number of these – I forget what they called them, but, like, kind of rage crimes where someone's where they're not supposed to be allegedly and someone lashes out and kills them. And even if you didn't believe in gun reform – how you cannot be afraid enough to not want to have like a substantive conversation about what culturally is going on, or there's this level of distrust. Like if, if I, I would like to think that if I were a conservative Fox news lover and I discovered that this guy is very distrustful, according to his grandpa, uh, his grandson, the um, guy who shot Ralph yeah. Yule, that he, he is paranoid and distrustful of people of color and immigrants, et cetera, in part because he is consuming Fox news at least this is his grandson's perspective, I would at least take 15 seconds to consider whether or not there's a way that I could advance my agenda, my, you know, protectionist, you know, protect our borders, whatever it is, agenda, without leading people to be so afraid that they're gunning down my fellow American citizens, children.
6: Yeah, I mean, to an extent, I I think even if there isn't um, an escalatory trend of gun violence maybe maybe this has been happening all the time and it's just been on local news and so forth and now it's being picked up by media because it's an interesting trend right um that's not actually a bad thing i mean prior to phone cameras cops were still being assholes to black folks right and Mm
7: -hmm.
6: um maybe things haven't changed as much as we want them to change on on the left however uh they're wearing you know badge cameras now and that's that's,
0: well, it didn't stop them for, from killing um, these cop city environmental activists, oh, but no, yeah, I'm going to take your that. point.
6: But the point is, like, drawing attention to it, even if the trend is the attention, um, it's still something we want to do, right? We want to point out, we want to highlight these things, we want to talk about them, we want to talk about the motivations, the underlying cause of the issues, whether they can be changed, and we don't want to stop talking about them until there's change, so I just find it... Um, it's it's a bit of a turnoff that people seem to be shying away from talking about gun control because it's become a cliche. So I'm going to do that.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I almost don't think it's like, it feels like people are just exhausted, Yeah. you know, and then you pass some gun control. I mean, there was some finally last year, some quote unquote common sense gun reform passed. And it's like, it's not clear that it would help in some of these cases like the last guy look he's a felon he got his gun illegally he was going to he was going to do felon shit you know i don't know that that, was, that one was a gun issue a- except for the fact that we have so many guns that it's relatively easy to get especially i think south carolina is one of the biggest um producers of states that are used in like northern homicides like in Chicago homicides which is something i tried to put to nancy mace when she was on the show a few weeks ago but we didn't really have time to get into um but outside of that it's like i mean like felons are gonna do felon stuff some of these cases it's like oh well there's no red flag law in uh tennessee where the guy shot up the bank where he worked but also would a red flag law have captured this guy who seemed to be like a normal contributing member of society or whatever who probably could have legally just bought a gun and gone and shot up his colleagues because he was big mad at work. And I guess we'll find out more about what was actually going on there. But you know what I mean? There's, there's a kind of a sense of futility to it all um, that I think is also driving people to not even engage in the gun debate. We've done this so many times. A friend of mine earlier today was saying um, that this was the anniversary of Cl- um, the Columbine shooting. Um, and he was like, Oh, remember when, we used to have anniversaries for these things and give them names and make movies about them because they felt, it felt like they were so rare.
6: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I I think it's um, valuable to try to understand what's causing people to act in this way. Um, But it's so nuanced and it's so situational and it's, it's, you can, you can get so deep in the weeds about, you know, one person's motivations Versus another, and whether there's an underlying trend or connection between them, and it's it seems more difficult of a topic to tackle than if these people had knives, we'd at least be less afraid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. can't
0: argue with that.
6: All right, well that was it. I don't want to take too much time.
0: Yeah, thanks for calling in, Anthony.
6: Yep. Have a good Keep life.
0: the feet. Britain, Britain. What's on your mind?
7: Brittany. Hi, Brianna. Can you hear okay. me? Loud and clear. Okay. So I just want to say I'm glad you're okay after being in that fender bender today. Um, I hope you didn't. How do you know about
0: problem. that?
7: You said it on Rising.
0: Oh, okay. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> what did I tell outside of the, the rising seat? I didn't realize I said it on air. Yeah, it was very minor. The cars barely nicked each other, but it um, oh. was a little disorienting. But thank you.
7: Yeah, sure. Well, that relates to the topic I wanted to talk about, which is public transportation. Mm. Um, I feel like having good public transportation really helps build a harmonious society. Mm. And I've lived in like Sweden, Israel ukraine and now korea and korea has a really amazing public transportation system Mm. so um i feel like you were talking about rage crimes um the the place i'm I'm originally from houston and the place i feel the most rage is like being on the highway stuck in these metal boxes and really bad traffic and Mm. it just makes you feel so angry and i was wondering if people had access to good public transportation like uh, subways and stuff, um, they would feel more calm and respect. Like when I'm in a uh, crowded bus, you'd think you'd get like stressed out, but actually you, you, you feel respect for each other and you, um you really kind of understand your fellow man. Like you don't, everybody's in this situation. So you don't want to like cause a ruckus. You just want to, um, you know, stay still and respect each other. So, Um, I feel like in Houston, um, we were going to build a public uh, tram system, but they got like shut down by the powers that be for another toll highway, which is Mm. just maddening. So things like this um, really, I think, would help. Uh, I don't know if it's going to solve like gun violence, but I feel like um, I've noticed a difference when I'm like in a place with good public transportation, I can relax. I don't have to worry about getting in accidents, accidents um, or having uh, drunk drivers and stuff uh, crash into you. Yeah. And you can, you can go out for a night and then go back home and not have to worry about crashing. And it's just yeah. more a peace of mind. So I, I was wondering if maybe you could have somebody who knows, a little bit about good public transportation, advocate for that in the US because we really need that, I think.
0: I just saw a TikTok that told me that in South Korea when you go out and you get drunk, because you know drinking culture is also like a, a whole thing, that there are mm-hmm. these cards in the restaurant and you call someone not to like designate like not to be like a cab home, but to drive mm-hmm. your car home. Oh,
7: I've never heard of that.
0: Well, maybe this that's TikTok's really a lying liar. No, well, no. it's kind that's of a fun true.
7: thing. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Um, so um, generally, yeah. to your general point, I completely agree. Look, it is definitely a thing that public infrastructure choices have an effect on our sense of community and how we interact with those around us. This oh. is like, um, what do you call it? Um, urban design psychology one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I took this class probably my first or second elective 1L year after or just before environmental law with Lonnie Guineer, where we learned about um, how various public housing developments uh, affect behavior Mm -hmm. and how having shorter housing developments where people have kind of individualized lawns that they are invited to take care of gives people a sense of investment in the property um it makes them less likely to litter on the property to treat it like it's their own and have a sense of ownership um how public pools parks and resources affect um crime rates etc mm. and how building big tall skyscrapers where there are these um stairwells which are dark and private and where crime can happen and where people are afraid to go and elevators that are malfunctioning and
3: yeah.
0: um nope no you know a small amount of land for all of the people stacked on high have the opposite effect um, and how we know this we we know we can affect crime outcomes we can know we can affect a sense of community um, by making these kind of architectural choices these design choices and we often because of money choose not to and it costs us more right you end up having to spend on the back end the criminal mm-hmm. justice system Sure. And so it wouldn't surprise me if there were similar corollaries with public transportation. I saw another TikTok, lol, you can see what I'm doing with my day. <laughs> I saw another TikTok where um, someone was joking about how they moved to some Scandinavian country and they were like, oh, we all carpool our kids to work. What day do you want to pick them up? And she was like, I don't drive. And she was like, you don't have to have a car to carpool. And they showed a picture of these like hilarious Scandinavian bikes that somehow can fit like six kids. On the back, <laughs> like <laughs> attached to all the different parts of the bike, and like little baskets, and it's like adorable. But like, yeah, like what a wonderful idea that you're carting around your whole community's kids to school, and it, it you, you just give me vibes from something like that, you know. And those, yeah. these are infrastructure choices, so it, it completely like makes sense to me. I'm not a driver. I I was in a Uber this morning, um, so I've never personally experienced road rage, but it seems intuitive to me um, that that having people together on public transportation or being able to walk or bike or scoot or do the other kinds of things that bring you closer to the ground and closer to your community than feeling boxed up in a little tin can that's your own and what you pay a, a bunch of money for, and yeah. what you're tethered to gas prices over and all of that kind of thing is better for our community and obviously our environment.
7: Yeah. Like, they said the car was supposed to give people freedom, but I feel like it just took away a lot of freedom in the U S for me, at least. Um, And regarding the architecture in Korea, we have like skyscrapers everywhere and Mm -hmm. people actually want to, like it's a um, ambition for a lot of families to move into these really tall skyscrapers because there's just no space Mm -hmm. for lawns and stuff, but we do have a lot of community gardens. So Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, I don't know. I I'm kind of on the more side. I love, skyscrapers and um,
0: well I mean we're talking about like projects here we're not like talking about a luxury building where there's other reasons why you would be invested in your building other than it having a garden do you know what I mean definitely yeah
7: yeah. Um, another thing is um, old people get to ride for free which I think we should do in the U.S. too and that helps keep them active and keep them feeling part of society and I feel like that's really important to take care of the elderly Mm Mm-hmm um, and I just have a couple more things. Uh, can I ask you how? What do you keep your rings at? Because I know you're always trying to cl- close your rings. Uh, like.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So, um, let me tell you. My red ring, my I guess calorie ring, is set at 520. Oh, <gasps>
7: 520! Wow, you're hardcore.
0: Oh, is that high? Because mine's a little lower than my best friend's, but it's because she got her Apple Watch when we were younger. And it, uh-huh. it, it uses your like age and, you know, other weight and stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm, <laughs> she's like, I was 30 when I got my Apple Watch. I'm 37 when I'm getting mine. So it, it doesn't want me to do, I think hers is like three 560 or something. So my oh, red wow. is 520 cal. My exercise ring is 30 minutes. And my standing ring was initially set to 12. But I got to tell you, I had like one or two days when I got up late mm-hmm. after pulling an all-nighter. And it was like there literally weren't enough hours in the day left for me to close my standing ring. And I'm like, or like, no, one day I went to rising and I left my watch at home. So I didn't get back home until like 2 p.m. And there weren't enough hours in the day for me to do 12 hours of standing. And I was like, screw this. I'm not going to not close my rings just because of standing, which is like the easiest <laughs> yeah. one. Um, but one you can't make up last minute by just hustling at the end of the day. So right. I put it down to 10 And then it happened again a couple of weeks ago that I left my watch at home. And so I put it down to nine just so I could close my rings for that day. And I never put it back up to 10. So it should be 10, but it's technically still set at nine. And I've done like 12 Uh, today already.
7: (laughs) That's funny. Um, And my uh, last question was, do you think you can fix or ask somebody at Rising to fix the music when the the podcast is like doing interludes? Because it's like playing two tracks at once and it's kind of jarring, but on the podcast yeah it plays like two different theme songs that when it's like transitioning to a a new segment
0: oh interesting i've never actually listened to the the rising and podcast forum but i'll bring it up to producers i know we're like radically understaffed um i wish i could work for you guys i love audio okay i will i will i will definitely bring that up uh on monday or maybe i'll put it on the slack tonight before i forget thanks
7: and thanks so much for you you're working like extra this week so thank you so much i cannot believe how you're able to keep such a high standard of quality content and
0: um oh, you're so sweet sharp, robbie sharpness brilliant slave driver suave wants me to do four <laughs> days a week every week i'm considering Aww. it but mm, grumble 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 we'll see
7: yeah keep up the great work thank you so much i love all your work and have a nice day bye
0: thank you you're so sweet keep the faith Bye. bye bye all right let's go to um maria what's on your mind tonight oh this q went and got a lot longer look at that hi can you hear me hey maria what's on your mind
4: hey uh yeah first i just want to say that uh i've also been watching you know, on rising this week and um, I just loved all your outfits. Uh, <laughs> really Thank you. Cute. That's, I that's like what's
0: important. And I'm not service. even kidding. Like that is the best thing that I could hear at, at 9:30 on a Thursday night. That's really buoyed my spirits. I appreciate you, Maria. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I appreciate you too. Um, it's, it's been really, really good on rising lately and yeah, no, these, uh, Yeah, I mean, everything from the increasing, like, yeah, I guess these rage killings is what people are calling them, but Mm. um, have been really. But, um, no, I mean, I guess, I don't know, I've been really, the cop city thing is really, I don't even know really how, because, I mean, I guess, I mean, there's like... (sighs) Like, I knew, you know, like, there's this, like, obviously the whole time there's this understanding that, like, the cops were obviously lying about it all. Mm-hmm. But, like, just, I mean, and the, it just, it feels like something out of, like, you know, the way that we talk about the way that, like, the FBI and, like, like all of these things about, like, you know, it's always framed in this historical narrative of, like, oh, yeah, like, Fred Hampton happened. Like, that, you know, you know mm-hmm. they fucking, you know, I mean... Mm-hmm. the whole thing but it's like it's always framed as like well that was like in the past and mm-hmm. like you know things have changed and they're no longer like hanging people out of windows or whatever the fuck and like shooting them you know like executing people but like i mean yep. it's just, I, I, yeah i don't even
0: so for those of you who don't know um manuel esteban tehran uh who was killed um there, there was this he said she said about who shot first and who was armed and you know all of this and so just I think it was just today this is, I'm reading from um, uh, Fox five Atlanta's story that was tweeted out by the uh, the activist um, kamal Franklin who I had on a couple months ago to talk about this. The story says that a Cald County medical examiner on Wednesday released the autopsy results related to the death of Manuel Esteban Pez Tehran, who demonstrated against the construction of the Atlantic public safety training center earlier this year. Tehran was shot and killed by police on January 18th as officers raided campgrounds occupied by environmental demonstrators who had allegedly been camping out for months to protest the development of the training center, dubbed cop city by critics. According to the autopsy report, Tehran did not have gunpowder residue on their hands. Officials claimed Tehran fired the first shot at a state trooper. Officers then responded with gunfire. The report stated Tehran had at least 57 gunshot wounds in their body, including the hands, torso, legs, and head. An independent autopsy from the family found that Tehran's hands were raised during the fatal shooting. The, the DeKalb County autopsy stated, however, there are too many variables with respect to movement of the decedent and the shooters to draw definitive conclusions concerning Mr. Tehran's, um, they go by the, they them, actually, um, the Tehran's body position. So there's it's a complete reversal of the cop story. And even you can see in the framing of this article, it's not written up. Cops lied about events, murder of protester. It just kind of frames it as autopsy port set, r- report says. Um, But it's galling, you know, and you're right. They can do these things with impunity and act like this isn't how the state behaves.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't I mean, I it's just it's like it's so it's just it's it's like it's gotten the point where it's just it's like hard to even sort of believe that like society can even keep like how ha- like I don't it just it feels like there's just always another like something else that's just awful that like shows that like the police are just out of control and like in a way that just feels like yeah like I like it's just it's hard to even I mean like obviously they're trying to build this whole like the whole thing too is over this like ginormous like mini city they want to build to like what like be able to figure out how to like work with israeli like defense forces to figure out how to best like shut down protests and like cordon Mm -hmm. off cities so that you can like quickly like i don't know arrest everyone or like you know like i don't know beat everyone with batons or like you know rubber bullets i mean and tear like it's it's like i don't understand how people and like how the narrative can still be like i mean it was just it was so you know you're watching just like i remember viscerally cuz i was you know in um at school in sweden for the you know in sort of the immediate wake of george floyd and all those protests before i came back to chicago mm. um and sort of participated more and it was just like you know i would just be watching the whole thing like just all of this like you know the crackdown from police that was just so horrifically intense and then like somehow you know I'd be talking to my family about it and like specifically like my parents and I would just be like it was like they were living in like an entirely different world where like their entire like Their reaction was always like, you know, bringing up something like, you know, about these news stories that would frame things as like some sort of riot that got out of control or like all of these like small businesses that were like, I don't know, vandalized or had their windows broken or were like, and I was like that, how, how is that the story that like you're consuming? And then like, I don't know, understanding the world through when like all I like. And every single, like, instance just seemed to be blown away Is like, well, that's just, like, you know, one video that shows, like, one cop, like, senselessly, like, beating someone or, like, pushing an old man to the ground so he, like, hits his head or, like, driving a car and a pro- I mean, it's just, like, and you just, I don't, it's just, I don't understand this, like, obsession people have with the police or, like, how it's so deeply ingrained, this idea that, like, these institutions and the states are, like, infallible and that any sort of like that that this like these protests and this like need for change is somehow radical when it feels like totally unradical to be like so like it, like it feels so natural and obvious to like stand yeah. up against this type of violence that it's like I don't know
0: I mean what's so funny is that I mean I, I understand the frustration Every, everyone didn't get it in 2020 but what was so kind of funny about 2020 is that a lot of people finally got it. It felt like there was a real public shift in attitudes where enough people had been caught on camera doing enough things that what black, you know, not only black people, obviously, but predominantly black people have been talking about for a long time about why we distrust the police and how our relationship with the police is often different than more affluent because classes is definitely a huge part of this um, people and white people. Um, was no longer looked at as like kind of black conspiracy theory or black excuse making or black grievance politics, but as real. And Black Lives Matter did that largely. Um, and it felt like progress. And Even today, as frustrating as things are, I feel like I don't really get into conversations where people are doubting discrimination. There's just a difference of opinion about what to do about it you know we they, they say oh we need to train the police harder they don't say, and not to fund them they, but they don't there's not as much arguing about whether or not the police have bias in the first place cuz we've all kind of seen it and i, I do want to credit that as like a step forward it's just there it, it's it's um it's helping people to imagine a world where they can feel safe and that there's someone to respond when bad things happen without them feeling so committed to a policing system like the one that we have today. It's one of these kind of, I think gaps in imagination issue where this is because people can't conceive of what could exist in lieu of the police to keep them safe in a world that is genuinely not safe. I mean, people have genuine safety concerns. If we can't message that the solutions that we're offering don't constitute an abdication of responsibility to keep people safe, then people are going to still want to cling to the police, even if they will acknowledge that it has its flaws. That's kind of where I feel like we are. Um, And that's part of why I've been so frustrated by, by some people on the left who have spent the last few years since 2020 engaging in this rhetorical discourse about how, Oh, well defund the police was bad messaging instead of doing the messaging of helping people to understand what kind of system we could have in lieu of the police, how much crime rates could be lower if that funding that was being spent on the police were being spent on social programs that stopped crime in the first place. What other societies around the world look like that have less car- carceral solutions to these problems and more public health solutions to these kinds of problems. And um, I will say this, like one of the things that Robbie and I have real sapatico on, on rising is, is you know when a crime issue comes up, he's like, yeah, like we saw crime rate rates rise and then fall that were correlated more with lead in gas and in paint than any criminal justice policy, and people need to be paying attention to that. He'll say that, you know, like people need to be paying attention to that if they really do care about crime and safety. But why is it that my libertarian co-host is saying that, but so many leftists just keep griping on and on about how? well, you know, people are getting beat up in San Francisco and so therefore we need more cops. I don't know.
4: Yeah. Yeah, no, I just, I guess, I mean, yeah. No, there definitely was a shift. um, Because I remember, I mean, to be fair, like, I think I also had maybe a more intense view of the shift just because, like, I was in high school when um, I first remember, like, sort of hearing and becoming like i became a lot more sort of activist in high school because i went to this super expensive private school in chicago that just drove me insane um mm-hmm. and led to a lot of just insane debate quote-unquote debates but they were just
0: anyway um but uh, you guys are so young you guys are so young when did everyone get so young <laughs>
4: Yeah, actually, when you said grumble, grumble, grumble in the last call, all I could think of was, I have an older sister who's 13 years older than me, and I was just like, oh, I've heard her say that, and it just kind of made me think of like that.
0: <laughs> I'm at this place, I was, I was with, they had us do like this test show earlier this week, it's not important, but I was in this group of other journalists and doing like a test panel, and... There was like some conversation about like, oh yeah, they just want to throw a bunch of young, you know, young journalists together and see what the chemistry is. And I was like, young like, am I? I'm like at a place where like I'm hesitating before I'm lumping myself in with the young journalists. Versus, there was one older guy on the panel who was like in his sixties, and I was like, mm, I think I might be closer to his age than me, like twenty three year old on the panel. <laughs> That's not a's not a there. The point is that everything's fine i mean I'm enjoying the sunset of my youth, <laughs> and I'm so glad that you people like you are in the mix you got, you guys are so much more ahead of the game. You can't even begin to imagine what politics were like when I was like twenty.
4: Yeah, no, I actually cannot even i can't even imagine living through Bush just in
0: general. I don't. You know, I just buried my head in acapella and got through it. You know, <laughs> I was, I was, yeah. I was doing the the BU acapella jam. You know, mm. bringing okay. home the trophies from nationals. You know what I'm saying? Oh, <laughs> that's wow. that's how I was spinning the early aughts, <laughs> and trying to pass uh, genetics, go to med school. LOL. Dreams deferred. At any rate, I appreciate you calling in, Maria.
4: Yeah, no, thanks for talking to me. And yeah, it actually did make me feel a lot better. You're, I actually really enjoy, um, listening to your show because you do, and not only because it's super interesting and fascinating conversations and all that. And I, you've really helped sort of solidify my political stances and a lot of things, but, um, also just, you're really able to make me sort of feel a lot more hopeful, I guess, or sure that like, I don't know, less, humorist I suppose about everything because
0: I do think it's going to be okay I can't promise you that I can entirely explain why (laughs) but it does feel like something's happening and I do feel like one way or another we're building towards something
4: yeah that's enough I think
0: yeah alright thank you
4: (laughs) thank you uh, keep uh, the faith Maria
0: Jonathan my main man what are you up to tonight
8: uh, well, I, uh, you know, with respect to what the earlier caller was saying, I, uh, am in Houston and I spend a lot of time on the road, and now you know why on Twitter I'm so good at, uh, engineering spontaneous rapid disassembly of, uh, bad faith <laughs> actors who attack you on Twitter. <laughs>
0: You're such a doll, Jonathan. I always say this. You know you don't have to do that. I muted the relevant parties, and I'm going to go back to blissfully being indifferent to their existence. Uh, But I do see you popping up in the mentions, uh, responding to muted and blocked parties, and I I always appreciate your support.
8: I was quite proud of my rancid tuna metaphor, but, uh, you know, the... um, like, honestly, like, this was something I had seen around before. This was a movement that, by the way, Dave Anthony is part of, um, you know, they, where they decide they're going to ostracize anybody who bought a blue check. And they're talking about ways of mass blocking people who bought Twitter blue and just stupid stuff like that. Uh, some Some weird kind of immature, childish protest. And, you know, what frustrates me about a lot of you know, these people that, you know, have relatively large, uh, you know, left media platforms wasting their time on nonsense like that and, you know, attacking other podcasters, having that, uh, that kind of uh, media incel mentality, like, you know, they're mad and they're jealous because they feel like they're entitled to your audience, but they haven't done anything to earn your audience, and so they're going to be mad at you about it. And instead of, meanwhile, focusing on all of these important issues uh, that, you know, have been in the news lately, that, that kind of have a through line that point to a kind of ominous direction. You know, you're starting to see yeah. the comeback of a lot of bad old history, um, yeah. you know, including, you know, the use of the weaponization of... Um, you know, police forces against uh, protesters, yeah. you know, mostly back in the day it was directed against labor, but,
7: yeah.
8: uh, you know, they're perfectly happy to uh, to use it against and, you know, institute things like qualified immunity, so they're completely yeah. unaccountable, and, uh, you know, these kinds of things are going on under our nose, like people are preparing for war against the population in anticipation of what's coming, and the only people that don't seem to realize besides the normies, are the the people that they're really trying to go to war against, which is us. And, yeah. I mean, yeah there,
0: there's a scene, I told this to Ole once when she was getting attacked over something. There's a scene in a, an amazing classic film. You might have heard of it, starring one Julia Roberts, known as My Best Friend's Wedding. It's got an amazing, exclusively Burt Baccarat soundtrack, rest in peace. And in that film, Julia Roberts has eyes on her best friend when she realizes he's getting married to one, Cameron Diaz, and tries to break up their wedding. And in the penultimate scene, she kisses Dillett McDermott, Dillett McDermott whatever his name is, her best friend. And his fiance, Kimmy, Cameron Diaz, sees and takes off running. He sees Kimmy run, so he chases after Kimmy. And Julia Roberts starts chasing after her best friend. They all ended up in cars. It's like a high-speed car chase through L.A. And Julia Roberts calls her other best friend, Rupert Effort, her gay best friend. And he is like, Julia, Julia, let me get this straight. You're chasing him. He's chasing Kimmy. Who's chasing you? And I think of this scene every time some shit like this goes down on the internet and i'm like you're talking about me (laughs) i'm talking about issues no you are not relevant in this situation and i have to remind myself that sometimes when you are the object of affection when you are kimmy (laughs) there's a lot of heat but it's a better position than being julia roberts god bless her who does not end up with the man in that movie. Because she was kind of being a see you next Tuesday. And you know. Like sometimes you just got to look around. And realize that this is not your fight. And people are going to do what they're going to do. And it's just is none of your business. And they can you know. There, there's, a, there's a marketplace. There is an economy of um, starting beef. With other people on the internet. That a lot of people profit from. And that is their right. But I don't have to participate in that.
8: No, I suppose not. It's just, you know, I, I, um, I find it frustrating in the same way that I kind of did uh, right after, uh, of course, Bernie uh, bent the knee in 2020, and the movement kind of started to disintegrate. I'm like, no, we had something. We had potential. Everybody was on the same page. And now there's, there's all of these uh, people that have let this brain rot infect them. And, you know, there's, it seems like there's only a, a very small percentage of our former coalition, you know, especially anybody with any kind of cloud at all, uh, that's basically doing what you're doing and, and focusing on important stuff, which, by the way, uh, you know, you, you did a fabulous job on pretty much each and every one of those issues that came up this week, especially the, uh, you know, the RFK announcement, you know, you managed to keep it. Uh, concise, but focus on the important points, which was, you know, I thought there was an important part of his message because let's face it, like the, you know, which you made reference to in your report, like the vaccine thing isn't nothing. Like that's not nothing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he did make the point, okay, in his speech, like we may not agree on everything, but I'm going to make sure you have a safe space to uh, argue for what you're going to argue for. And I'm like, okay, let's listen to what this guy has to say. And I think a lot of people are reacting that way, except for, of course, the news media, which, you know, as Matt Taibbi's pointed out, they have always had an overinflated sense of their own importance and responsibility in these things. But part of the reason why Tucker Carlson is the most popular news show and, uh, and Fox is so much more popular than they are in the ratings is because they spend all this time on air hand-wringing about their responsibility and how they're going to manage uh, what you poor little peasants see on TV and get poured into your brain uh, you know, from the from the boob tube like you're all a bunch of idiots. And uh, nobody wants to hear that. But uh, you know, you just done a marvelous job kind of touching on the important points in ways that a lot of them just don't. And um, I appreciate it.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, the one thing that... Maybe you can help me understand this. I, I guess I don't quite understand. Like, as leftists, we understand that when these, like, capitalists, <laughs> when, when when the neolibs come at us and are like, Yo, you can't be a socialist, you're tweeting from your iPhone or whatever. We all understand how dumb that is, right? Like, we all understand that we live in a society and we are using the society. Like, we all understand how dumb that is. But there are people right now protesting folks who have a blue check and they're doing it on Twitter. Yep. I, I like, I don't like they're literally on Twitter. If, if you're, if you're in the sand is that giving Elon Musk money means you're promoting fascism. I mean, okay. Like, Look, I'm not beyond doing a little bit of consumption politics. I didn't buy... I I, I overpaid for an ARC air bubbly maker so I didn't have to buy a SodaStream because it'd be uh, BDS, okay? But, like, to, to literally be using the app and providing free content for the app that you say that you're protesting while you're protesting the app on the app does seem to me to be a little bit of a conflict of interest.
8: But, but also, like... More- he pointed out the Christian Smalls thing, like they're in his replies telling yep. him, you know, not not focusing on the point he made, which was Joe nope. Biden's claiming to be the most pro-union president. And like he has shit except break a strike and, uh, you know, gave them a bunch of pamphlets and lip service and then told them to, to go jump in a lake. And, yep. you know, he's got like these people in his replies And yet you have a blue check. You paid for a blue check. Why are you supporting Elon Musk? And they're not like, it's the ridiculousness of it. It's so stupid. So first
0: of all, let me say, I want to say something a little bit about blue check discourse. I think that some of the people who talk about the blue checks the most are secretly like very into it. I got to say, I like, there are people who seem to be really, they, they, there's this performative, like, I don't care about my blue check from people who every other word for all that they don't care about their blue check, every other word out of their mouth seems to be about a blue check. I, you know, I got on Twitter. I started my Twitter account in 2009 because I was doing a summer internship at the Boston Children's Hospital's legal department my 1L year. Part of one of my responsibilities because i was a young person around was to figure out this new thing called twitter and help the hospital develop develop their twitter their, their social media policy i left the account fallow between 2009 and basically 2015 when i started tweeting because of bernie and in 2015 2016, I had 500 followers and sometime between then and 2018, it became tens of thousands of followers. There's no blue check to be in sight. I'm not an official journalist or anything until I joined the Intercept in 2018. At which point Glenn Greenwald tweets at Jack that I should have a blue check and one appears. But at no point, (laughs) at no point did I ever solicit a blue check, care about a blue check, saying the word blue check is so corny and stupid. I hate that it just came out of my mouth so many times. Who is paying that much attention to it? Nobody. But there is a class of people who I think really actually does care about it, who won't stop talking about it, and who seem to be more invested in the idea of it being a clout thing than I ever actually have been. I pay for Twitter blue because if I don't, our mom has to spend more time editing and I have to be more precise with the time, the time edits that I give him for clips for the show to make sure whatever phrase or idea I'm trying to capture fits within two minutes, 20 seconds. If I have, the if I pay for Twitter blue, which I paid for since the beginning of 2021, I got it a few months after we started this podcast then you can be much more fast and loose with the edits, and not have to spend an extra like twenty or thirty minutes editing the down the clip down perfectly so it fits within Twitter's uh, time limitations. There were a couple of times with um, when Ben was still the producer, and he would send me a clip, and it would be like a fraction of the second too long. It would look like it was two minutes twenty, but it was really two minutes twenty and like twenty point twenty three seconds. And I would have to like get him to recut the thing because it wouldn't upload on Twitter and it's a pain in the ass. So for $8 a month, I, my job is to be on Twitter. My job is to, is to post videos. I can post my entire radar because I have Twitter blue. The idea that it's like a, a problem for anybody that that would be the case. I mean, I didn't even think about it that hard. I mean, it would have taken Ah, more thought for me to undo my subscription and like find the email and go and decouple my shit. Like that would have been taken more time and thought than me just waking up today and going about my business, not really considering that I have had the subscription for like two years now.
8: Ah, but you don't understand when you post a video that's two minutes and thirty seconds instead of two minutes and twenty seconds. uh, You are working for Elon Musk and uh, (laughs) being his his uh, his agent and his personal podcaster.
0: It, it, like, I just, it's, Jonathan, it is so unbelievably stupid. <laughs> I, it, it hurts. It hurts me. Like, even if you cared, like, even if you were like, oh, why do you have that? Like, you should just accept the answer and move on. Like, I mean, also, like, what what is the accusation that I love Elon Musk? What What is the it, accusation that I've been insufficiently critical of Elon Musk? Is that a, a thing that somebody with eyes and ears and the ability to consume my content in whatever way, whatever say?
8: Looking through the replies, I'm not sure there's anything that coherent in there. It's just, you know, that meme with the the, uh, NPC with the blue check on its head and people pointing and laughing at it. And that's basically what that movement has been from the get-go.
0: It's so weird. And then that, um, what's her name, Alejandra, the trans activist, who's friends with Aaron Reed and who does some good work and who also says some things that are wrong and she gets in trouble for it. And you know, they were constantly piling on her. Like she, she was testifying before. You remember there was that moment at the hearing where she testified and she um, was called out by some conservatives because she had um, advocated for violence against anti-trans people. And they're like, you're a hypocrite because you want there to be no violence on Twitter, but you yourself have called for violence against people on Twitter.
8: Oh, was that her?
0: That was her. I saw her. Ah. I had to mute her too. I, I have refrained, like on rising and in other places, people dogpile her. Even, and even though she's often wrong, I gotta say, I have made, gone out of my way to try to defend her and say, well, let's make sure our criticisms of her are narrow and fair because she's also doing good work. Like, why would you just be running around trying to make enemies? And I, I'm not going to change my behavior. I don't think that people should be transphobic and unfair to her just because she's being a fucking bitch on the internet right now. <laughs> but like, yeah. like, why are you grow up? Grow up! Hello, well, just just yeah,
8: be I mean, normal.
3: Be chill.
8: <laughs> that's the brain rot that is is so exceedingly frustrating against the backdrop of all the news. It's, you know, we, we have serious things going on, and these people are terminally online, running around, doing stuff like this. And you just have to ask yourself, why?
3: Why? It's so,
0: like, it's, it's too stupid. I had my last Uncrustable and had a gin martini. And I hopped on here and I've been having a lovely chat with you guys. When I'm gonna done, I'm gonna close my rings and fall into bed. And tomorrow I'm gonna interview an actual leftist who cares about shit for Monday's episode. And I'm gonna go about my life. But holy shit, today was like, I haven't had a day on like this on Twitter. Probably since I guess the whole like, uh, I hate Ukrainian children fiasco over the summer.
7: <laughs> and those I, was, were in there.
0: Right? I was reminded like, oh yeah, this shit is like toxic as hell. And it's like, To the extent that Twitter sucks, yes, Elon Musk is part of the problem, but also you, not you, but like the user. (laughs) Ultimately, Twitter is what we make of it. And all the people who are complaining right now, it's like, yes, Elon sucks. And you are giving him a run for his money right now.
8: (laughs) Any teasers on who who Monday's episode is going to be?
0: I mean do you guys want it to be a surprise i feel like you know is it is it is it a letdown for you to for me to spoil these kinds of things
8: It it's not for me but i can't speak for everybody else uh, you did mention corey Doctoro on rising uh is that is that who it is
0: it's not but corey should come back on um there was something specifically i actually wanted to have uh corey to talk about on rising was it maybe this ai stuff
3: because be. everybody
0: ai keeps coming up the buzzfeed i don't know if you saw the news BuzzFeed News is shutting down. They said they want to focus on AI, whatever that means, for a news org. That's terrifying. Elon Musk (laughs) is telling Tucker Carlson that, like, AI is the next thing. And I'm like, I don't even understand what that's supposed to mean. Like, what are you actually talking about?
8: Yeah, they're – like, all of these these weird tech futurists are overstating the importance and significance of this thing. It's like you said – uh, something that uh, that high school and college students are using to cheat on their take-home essay exams. That's basically what right. it is.
0: Well, uh, one of my very good friends uh, is a teacher, and like the only substantive conversations that I have about Chat GPT are with him and his high school students, and uh, how like traumatic it is. How many meetings all the teachers have had about how they're going to deal with this? Because also like. I don't know if you saw there was a, a, a viral tweet of a young woman author, I suppose, who said that you can use Chat GPT to assess how good your draft is without having to get your friends or family or editor to read your draft. And then people dogpiled her about it for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons being that she fed as an example of an ideal writing sample to Chat GPT. Uh, the young adult novel *A Fault in Their Stars*, and people were mad at her for thinking that was the peak of literature. Which, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's not the peak of literature, but people just like to dunk on lowbrow stuff. But never mind. And the other reason people were mad at her apparently is because when you feed original content to Chat GPT, it internalizes it, and they could come back and if someone like checked it using Chat GPT, could tell you it wasn't original because you've given Chat GPT your words, which it's now using to create other content for other people. So how it's like a chicken and the egg situation. How can you even tell, you know, chat GPT could be giving you false results about plagiarism. You know what I mean? Because you told it your own stuff to use to assess other people's material before you might have ever published your work. Anyway, anyway, I think the whole thing. Like, I really don't like the idea of telling a kid that they're cheating based solely on this kind of new infallible software. But also, it's a very tough situation for for teachers to be in because the kids be dude, the kids be cheating. The kids cheat. <laughs>
9: yeah. I anyway.
8: unfortunately I've been on too long because uh, you said you you said to move on after fifteen minutes or so, and uh, there's definitely other people in line. But I appreciate you having me up here to. To talk about this stuff, and uh, I'll, I'll catch you at the next one.
0: Always a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Keep Always the
8: pleasure. faith. You too.
0: Let's go to uh, Cormac. What's on your mind, Cormac? Hey, Bree. Can you hear me? Howdy. Loud and clear.
10: Hey, how, how is your day going?
0: Not so bad. You know, it's got its ups and downs. <laughs> how about yourself?
10: I'm I'm doing great. I just I wasn't on the internet today, so I was like, "What what happened that I missed out on?"
0: Yeah, nothing.
10: <laughs> nothing. Okay. <laughs> By the way, did you ever see the Whitney Houston movie? What did you think of that?
0: Oh my god, yes. So look, I was ready to be mad because I felt like they couldn't do Whitney justice, right. but I cried. I I think it, it really respected her incredible talent. It. Mm. Respected her as a complicated, multifaceted person who had her flaws, but was also just a star who shined. And the actress really captured her fresh beauty, her ingenue quality. There's this beautiful relationship between her and Clive Davis who. I'm sure he was not quite as lovely as he was painted in the movie, but I was okay Ooh. with it. Um, Stanley Tucci, who can do no wrong, playing, and I didn't know that Clive Davis apparently was known, kind of like known but not known to be gay, and so they, she was one of the, he was one of the few people who had this like solidarity with her. As someone who also had this long-term relationship with her best friend, Robin, who I also appreciated being portrayed very openly and honestly and warmly in the movie. They dealt with her drug issues, I think, very sensitively and her relationship with Bobby Brown in a way that respected the relationship and the fact that Bobby Brown didn't make her. Like, he didn't place all the blame on Bobby Brown, which I think is also unfair. She had her own demons. But also, like, I don't know, it just felt very respectful and like it really got what made Whitney so special. It was I thought it was great. I thought it was beautiful. That's good.
10: Yeah, I know you you really uh, admired her, and I thought uh, I don't know. I thought she she was she was an interesting character because not only was she such a phenomenal vocalist, but she also was was a very like distinct person and a really beautiful woman. Like she really was like kind of one in a, one in a billion in a way. Like she she was. Um, like I love listening to her, her, her uh, little interview with with Wendy Williams. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, she was, she was
0: quite a, quite a legend, wasn't she? She was a force. She was she had this like girlish kind of wispy look about her, but mm-hmm. Whitney Houston was a force. Mm-hmm. And she was witty, and she was quick, and she could clap back. Whitney, ugh, I I I. I, I missed Whitney and that movie made me miss Whitney and like the gift that she had. And I'm just glad that we had her as long as we did.
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- absolutely. I agree with you. And on a different note, um, I was just thinking, cause I mentioned I had kind of a long winded thought last time we talked, cause I was, I'm, I'm curious about how, um, to bring more people on board with, um, our, our vision and our agenda because I kind of have this like debate with other leftists like I was trying to call into uh, somebody else's show and they kind of ardently believe that like oh no the American people are, are on our side and they kind of point to a lot of these polls that people really do like the policies like medicare for all and raising the minimum wage and that's true but at the same time, I think there is a bit of a disconnect in how people vote and whether or not people choose to vote and and um whether people are on our side. And I don't know, I think that I I, I want people um to to be on, on get on board with, with uh the policies that we believe in outside of the context of an election. Um because I feel that there are kind of cracks forming in the Reaganite consensus, the neoliberal consensus. Like there's a general sense that things aren't going exactly uh quite right and that something's mm-hmm. not quite right in our society and in our economy but i don't think like i feel like you you kind of have to lead them to the water and i don't feel i feel like there needs to be more, more work more work needs to be done um with with people and i think um so yeah I don't, i'm don't. i know. trying i don't know how to exactly i start like a, a think tank or something i don't know i should reach out to like more perfect union or the gravel institute but i'm just i want to um get more people on board Well both like liberal liberals you know who watch mainstream media i want them to hear the truth and just and people maybe who have lost faith in the system mm-hmm. uh, i guess um i guess my point there is that in 2015 2016 when bernie came onto the scene the way that it was framed in the media at times was that you know he's kind of this crazy old man who's got these far out ideas and they're just not realistic and they can never get done it's just kind of like this pie in the sky thing we're america we're not sweden like we can't make it you know they have all that and and if you want to be serious and you want to get things done you got to go with these main the mainstream that you know the the clinton biden pelosi types that's the real democrat Mm -hmm. whereas in reality bernie's policies are much more in alignment with the vision of um the new deal and um Many uh, people on the left uh, back in the day, although things weren't perfect, you know, like the Keynesian economic uh, agenda was much more in alignment with a, a a social democracy, and you know, even people like Kennedy were calling for single payer health care in the '60s. And even Republicans like Eisenhower were pretty progressive in in their tax rates and it was just a very different system and a lot Mm -hmm. of these kind of older people and older middle-aged people they they just don't know even like intelligent people you know they don't know like their history and they they the the framing was so simple so simplistic of like you know he's he's pie in the sky they don't realize that like how far like the democratic party has strayed like how it was you know hijacked by this this corporatist ideology and by people that were much more aligned with Wall Street than with, um, you know, working class people, and so I guess I guess my point, what really sold me as someone who was kind of bought into the BS a little bit in 2015, I was kind of won over, was that 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 the American economy used to be much different, and our leaders were very different, and um, and um, I just wish more people would would, would know, and there's a lot that I'm been learning, and I I just want there to be a way to get people. On board before we are like begging them during a campaign, like how we can get them ready beforehand.
0: Well, it's campaign season now. Yeah, um, but I mean,
10: like long term.
0: I, I mean, I feel like you kind of know the answer to that question, don't you? Don't you have a sense of of what some of the crit- criticisms have been about what Bernie did to his organized arm? And some of the conversations that we've been having about the importance of having a persistent kind of organized labor force in the United mm-hmm. States, the kind of work that Workers Strike Back is trying to do. Does that yeah. does that stuff not resonate with you or are you, are you do you have something else in mind? Does
10: well I, I think,
0: to you? Well, you
10: see like what the 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 packs, like the dark money um, does in these elections, that it's not just about you know, electability. But, you know, if, if, if you have these packs coming in, they usually, most of the ads that they do, they, they target like the suburbanite folks that watch the mainstream media. And they'll say, oh, if you elect this person, like a Summer Lee, you know, she's going to be adversarial to the Democratic Party. And someone like Summer Lee was able to hold on because she had like the city of Pittsburgh and she, she did really well with working class people. But a lot of those um, suburbanite people, they still feel like they're still... Um, You know they're just not they just don't know um the truth about the policies in history and they still kind of are um under the influence of the, the the neoliberal corporatism to an extent and um i guess i'm thinking about it through that perspective the people who like like a pete or an amy klobuchar you know they they um they still have a lot of power um in the democratic primaries and um so yeah i think the labor i think the labor um the route is, is important and I think mobilizing working class people, maybe mobilizing non-voters, I think would, would help. But um, I don't know if we would do it getting used to try to, to try to reach out to the C crowd. I don't know if we could do like an advertisement or do an infomercial or something to talk to them.
0: You know, I honestly don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's about reaching out to them. I think that the people who like RFK and the people who like, Joe Biden are just not going to be the same people for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know that I would be especially focused on that. And I think that's why I I agree with Saabi's critique about the limits of running within the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. You have to appeal to some section of those neoliberal voters. And I just don't think it's. I think it is very unlikely. Mm -hmm. Those people are not our people. Mm -hmm. They're just not. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't try to convince you know uh buck Sexton to vote for bernie any more right. than i would try to vote uh convince roland martin to vote for bernie like it's just mm-hmm. not going to happen mm-hmm. but there are a lot of people out there who don't vote or who vote for uh independent candidates whether it's bernie or trump mm-hmm. and there are enough of those voters to win elections um and I think that has to be the focus of finding new voters and turning out new people, and mm-hmm. that's where I think Bernie really wasn't able to be as successful as he should have been. Right. And that's the future, and it's about getting new people, younger people, and non-voters into the process. And you're right; that takes a lot of work, and it takes more work. And I'm not saying abandon the project of trying to convince people, mm-hmm. but and I think you should definitely go on to MSNBC and CNN and those kinds of shows and make your pitch because all kinds of people watch watch those mm-hmm. but um, yeah I don't I don't have any particular advice because the people who are committed to neoliberal politics have a good reason to be it benefits them so I don't really have a pitch for them they they should vote for Biden to protect their interests but their interests are not our interests
10: yeah Bernie right I, I just think um, I think that, that it is possible to, to, um, to peel away some of them because, um, you look at, uh, uh, success of like Jesse Jackson in 88, wasn't he, he was quite, um, progressive on like, I think he supported a single payer healthcare system and he, he did quite well, um, in a place like South Carolina, um, you know, Ed Markey, who was, when he was up against Kennedy, he, I mean, obviously he's no Bernie, but he, he managed to have a coalition of young people and then as well as kind of the college educated kind of Warrenite people. Um, I guess I guess my thought, I guess this is, should be my own uh, thing to figure out, but, um, you know, I, I think we should work on getting uh, the more apathetic people, the non-voters involved, but also, like, it, the, the the educated liberals. I just think, I, it, yes, there are, like, the more affluent people that are protecting their class interests, but there's also, like, just well-meaning people that are just, they're just, they've just been taught that this is how it is, and, you know, they've mm-hmm. been propagandized. And I really think if they knew, if they knew that, um, I think you could, you could, um, went over some of them I, uh, because I was, cause I was won over. So, and that, um, so I think it's, 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 it's possible. Um, but I yeah. guess that's something for me to, to think about. Well, what about. won
0: you over? What was it that won you over?
10: Well, it was, it was, um, oh, I was really inspired by a lot of the speakers he had, like Cornell West and, um, and it was, it was, um, it was knowing my history a little bit better and knowing about FDR and how, how much the Democratic Party has changed since then and how it used to be this party of, of Labour and um and and that that um and that I ultimately that we that I just was inspired by a lot of the surrogates that Bernie had that said we you know we should fight for a better we should fight for a better future because it's possible. Um I, I just think um it was yeah, just I mean, that. I think there
0: are people who that will work for you know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I appreciate your perspective as someone who is who for, for persuasive, and that's why I think yeah, folks should go on those those channels and, and get the people who we get. But that's you know, I think only a, a piece a piece of the puzzle, and not to be overly discouraged, but and mm-hmm. spend too much time on folks who are just not going to be edible. You know? right?
5: Yeah, I understand.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for calling in McCormick.
10: All right, thank you, Brianna. You have a great
0: You too. Keep the faith. What's your mind tonight, Tucker?
11: Hey. um, Something's just been on my mind for a little while. um, And it usually comes up with the debate on taxes and how high taxes should be. Mm
3: -hmm.
11: And every time Robbie's like, oh, I believe uh, people should be able to make as much money as they want. And it, it always comes back to oh, people should have the freedom to make as much money as they want. But that shouldn't be the framing of it because in order for people to make as much money as they want, the more money there has to be in the economy. So there needs to be an inflation of the monetary supply so people can have more money. So it's not really about their freedom to make more money. It's actually taking away from everybody else by inflating the monetary supply just so a couple of people can have more money. And I think this is where like, I'm from rural Arkansas, so, like, whenever I have these conversations, I run into the same problem that you've had with Robbie. Like, how he says, oh, it's about freedom, it's about freedom. Well, it's really not about freedom when a couple people have $200 billion and a bunch of other people have to suffer for rights prices when, I, I don't, I don't know. I kind of got, I didn't know what was up next. I was kind of doing something, so I didn't have this.
3: Really, no you can you can take your time,
0: but I mean, I, I take your point that I do think an important part of the argument is realizing that billionaires, the very wealthy don't just exist in a vacuum, that there are trade offs, that there are consequences. It's not like, oh, b- being a billionaire, being a billionaire doesn't hurt you or affect you. Why are you so concerned about their money, that their money isn't just money that comes out of the ether, that that's. Um, wealth that is being stripped from the labor force, that it's wealth that is being used to undermine our democracy, to buy elections, to buy lobbying groups that affect the legislation that comes down the pike, all of those kinds of things. And when you start to explain to people money in those kinds of terms, they no longer are as willing to get in the position of saying, you're being mean to Jeff Bezos, or why are you talking so meanly about Howard Schultz? I heard he was one of the good CEOs. And you realize that you're part of a a labor struggle with a lot of other people in solidarity with you um, who share your class position, and that there are real stakes to allowing certain people to amass so much wealth, and that it's literally come at your expense. So I I do think that's a much more effective message than kind of like talking about billionaires in a vacuum.
11: Yeah, and that's my issue is like whenever I have these conversations, because I. Like when I work, like I work in like manual labor, so I'm usually around a bunch of like Trump supporters, conservatives, and all this stuff. And they always talk, oh, taxes are too high on the rich, which I don't understand because these people don't even make 25 grand a year. Like they're so worried about these rich people having low taxes, they just don't understand that for them to make all of that money, there needs to be more money in the economy for them to have. And, like, once uh, it has happened a few times, like, they finally do understand and do support taxing the rich more because they finally get, oh, in order for there to be more millionaires, there needs to be more millions of dollars out in the economy. In order for them to be more billionaires, there needs to be more billions of dollars out in the economy. So if we don't have billionaires, in my opinion, I don't think we should have millionaires, but, like, we should tax them more to quite frankly fight inflation to like shrink the monetary supply
0: yeah yeah um, yeah I think that I think those kind of arguments um, are important and folks like Stephanie Kelton who frame the reason why we tax people in those kinds of terms instead of just as like collecting tax revenue to pay for social programs point of convincing people that kind of our way of seeing the world is is the right one and the Invested in kind of tax policy as a like a broader, um, almost a pro-democracy policy, as well as this um, kind of redistributive uh, policy that it's normally conceived as. So I appreciate you calling in, Tucker.
11: Thank you. Have a good night.
0: You too. Sylvester, what's on your mind tonight? You with us? Slide, did I catch you off guard? Should I go to somebody else? All right, I can come back to you. Matthias, what's on your mind tonight? Can anyone un- unmute yourself, Matthias? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. What's on your mind tonight?
12: Um, not much. Actually, I have a Kind of random question. Um, you said that you studied art history in school once, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It was my secondary concentration.
12: Was there any particular, like, uh, period or uh, region or whatever that was your specialization or nope. focus of No, I was a
0: joint concentrator with history of science. So I took the classes that, that were able to get me to qualify for both of my majors. Harvard doesn't have a major-minor system, or it didn't at the time. So you had to basically do the full class load. So I took whatever I could that would satisfy both and also contribute to my joint, the my required joint thesis project. So no, I didn't have a specialty in art history. Why do you ask?
12: Oh, I was just curious. I, I uh, studied art. So I was, I was wondering.
0: Sorry to disappoint. You. What was your area of specialty?
12: Um, I, I just did uh, painting. I didn't do art history specifically. Um, oh, okay. Although... Are you a painter
0: now? Do you, yeah, do you professionally yeah. do art? That's amazing. What kind of stuff uh, do you paint?
12: I, I usually just paint um, like figures, portraits. Um, that is, it's a, it's a great question. I'm always trying to figure out what it is to do.
0: yeah it can be difficult to find inspiration I used to like so I thought I was going to do a studio studio art uh, major at first and and took a couple of studio art classes my freshman year before I realized what my major was going to be and um, I really enjoyed them and ended up doing a lot of portrait work largely because um, it was easy to find a subject when there are mirrors (laughs) yeah Um. And it ended up, it was very difficult, actually. I took this painting class my second semester that really kind of messed with me uh, because it's very (laughs) time-consuming, oil painting. And I was taking um, this kind of notoriously hard bio class at the same time because I thought I also was going to be pre-med. And I found myself falling asleep under a giant canvas leaned against uh, the wall in this um, our Corbusier-designed art building in a really tragic moment in my life and uh realized that this was not the path for me
12: yeah yeah no i i feel that i personally despise oil paint i i've got a bunch of it at my house and i'm like man every once in a while i'll like break it out and be like okay it's pretty cool it's pretty cool and then i'll start painting with it. and it's like man this takes forever to dry It gets, like, you get a little bit on your hand. It gets fucking everywhere. Yeah, But, you know. And and the other thing is the the turpentine, too. It's both poisonous and really expensive. And, you know, water, (laughs) I mean, it's not, like, free, but it's a lot more free than paint thinner. Gotta say.
0: Yeah. It's a... It is very, it's it's a difficult medium to work with. We also, so I mentioned, so our, our art building was literally like a historical building, this Le Corbusier building, which is not a great fit when you are supposed to be doing art in there. So we had to like, because you had to preserve the building, you couldn't get paint on it. So in the art room, we'd have to do this elaborate setup of like taping all of this paper down on the floor to make sure we didn't damage like this historical... <laughs> building and on that on top of everything else i mean it was like really cool it was like a beautiful cool modernist building uh and i felt very grateful to have seen that side of campus because you know Harvard isn't exactly like an arty campus and there are all Mm -hmm. these spaces that i had access to and was in because of that little dabbling that i did freshman year that you know, most people were never exposed to, and it was, it was lovely. It just wasn't a lovely thing to do at the same time I was trying to pass BS 50. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what, think, what's on your I mind tonight? tonight? Did you call in to just talk about uh, art or did you have other things on the brain?
12: Um, well, I didn't really have anything else on, on the mind, except I was thinking earlier, uh, you know, when, when everyone was talking about, uh, everyone was talking about um, RFK Jr., You know, it is it is kind of interesting the way that um, he is in a he's in a very good position to appeal to a much wider demographic than most uh, progressive candidates. Right. And it is because Mm -hmm. of the kind of idiosyncratic beliefs that he has that, you know, uh, to to parrot what was said earlier, it's not that there's nothing there, you know, with say, like vaccine stuff or whatever. But it, you know, like you were saying, if anyone has any criticism of the Democratic Party's handling of COVID, he is the only one who is out here taking any kind of a stand, even slightly in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, In, in terms of coalition building, you know, on some on some level, compromises have to be made. So I don't know. It just got me thinking about, like, OK, where do you where do you make compromises that are acceptable versus, uh, you know, a compromise that uh, one feels is, uh, say, throwing a marginalized community under under the bus. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
12: But I didn't I didn't really have any larger thoughts.
0: Yeah, that. no, I mean. Admit- uh, this earlier and then one of the other I mean on Rising and one of the other callers tonight alluded to it but you know Democrats are the kings and queens of uh, lesser to evil evilism they ignore any number of things Tarvey's allegations the other sexual harassment assault allegations against Biden at the beginning of his campaign the crime bill the fund cops harder during the social justice movement in 2020 um, the Utilizing of segregationist Strom Thurmond, the Anita Hill dog piling, and on and on and on. Um, and they say, suck it up, vote for Biden because Trump is worse. So I don't understand the pearl clutching about a voter who might decide that even though they strongly believe in vaccines or at least non COVID vaccines that they think that there's a real risk of meningitis and other horrible deadly illnesses running rampant among the youth population because of vaccine skepticism and the autism connection, which has not been proven that they're willing to overlook that because of all of his attributes in other places. And I just don't think you can really take an ethical position that it is immoral to ignore what, uh, you know, RFK Jr.'s position on autism when you've been literally telling voters for years to ignore any number of, I would argue, much worse actions on that have been committed by any number of Democratic candidates um, since time immemorial. Hashtag vote blue no matter who, you know?
12: Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is kind of funny to consider because it does – you know, I mean, these are the people who spend all their time pointing out how hypocritical Republicans are. And they seem completely baffled when, you know, someone like Mitch McConnell will, you know, like uh, block the judge with Obama and then, you know, like do put the judge that he wants in there. Right. Like, oh, my God, this is hypocrisy. But it's not difficult for them to, uh, you know, like when it's their guy, it's like, you uh, No problem. No problem. I will, you know, be a total hypocrite and, you know, defend these people and totally ignore all the bad shit that I'm accusing the others of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Republicans are doing their jobs and Democrats at this point are just mad that they're so bad at theirs. I mean, I can't even, I honestly, I can't even. I can't even be mad go. at the Feinstein stuff. They're, like The Republicans are literally doing what I would hope Democrats would do in that situation. Democrats need to stop just screwing the pooch so effing hard. It's embarrassing. They've been, frankly, n- so negligent when it comes to the court, not just like this year, not just with RBG, but for literally decades. It, it's Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse has done like a really good job tracking this. The Intercept was going to do this whole federal court tracker thing. I don't know what happened to it. They were working on it when I left to join the Bernie campaign. But I said this on Rising this morning. It is uh, if if you look at when Democrats retire from the federal court, they do it like whenever they feel like retiring. Republicans do it strategically when there is a Republican in the White House and over the years that has resulted in a replacement rate for Republicans that is much higher than the replacement rate for Democrats Republicans will take senior status which is a judge can like half retire still like have a smaller caseload but if you the the judge the, the president that's in office when you take senior status is the president that gets to appoint your replacement so you can just time your retirement out So that you can ensure that your guy or gal gets to replace you. And Republicans have been doing that for decades. And Democrats are just like, it's her turn. Like, no one gets to tell me when to step down. And as a consequence, we have a right-wing federal judiciary. And there's, like, honestly no one to blame but Democrats. So here we are. Like, I'm, I'm, like, over, I'm over, like, I'm over pretending like there's some great big conservative conspiracy i mean there is i mean there's fed and all of that but that's not like a conspiracy it's them doing the work to control the courts and democrats haven't been doing it and it's making it makes me angry not sad not feel sorry for the democrats it Makes me pissed off feinstein is she did this to herself we all warned and nancy pelosi is still walking around talking about it's sexist to tell her to step down well she doesn't have to step down because right now there's no point if she does She's like screwed the entire pooch. And if she steps down, it does, it's not clear that Democrats will be able to make her replacement on the Judiciary Committee or get anyone else on the Judiciary Committee. So we're fucked. It's over. Yeah, Unless she yeah. can like put some salve on her shingles and hollow her way back into, into Congress to make a few last votes on her way out. Like that's that seems to be the only outcome. Like we're all should just be praying hard for her health because that's all we got right now.
12: Yeah, yeah, just like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right? Yeah. I can't get um, over it. I mean,
0: this woman, I mean, this is not a like she had a very serious form of cancer. Like, that's very terrible. But to have one of the most deadly forms of cancer, and she ha- she was dealing with pancreatic cancer for like a really long time. To know that you're struggling with that and to play so fast and loose with your replacement, knowing what's on the line. To have the hubris to go into 2016 saying, mm-hmm. I just know Hillary is going to win. And I think it's so important for a woman to po- appoint my replacement that I'm going to screw Americans. Like, I don't know. She and Scalia are somewhere toasting marshmallows in hell as far as uh, I am concerned.
12: Yeah. No, I mean, it is it is an astonishing act. Uh, what, what, what you just said, though, about like the, the way that uh, like the Republican like turnover rate in the Judiciary Committee. It did make me think of um, uh, this uh, Matt Chrisman on his uh, podcast with the Chapo producer, Chris Wade. They did like a podcast about the history of the presidents of the United States. Mm. And I think at one point he said, like, you know, the Republicans operate like a political party. And at this point, the Democrats are like, you know, it's like a big tent of individual political entrepreneurs who are each acting in like what they perceive to be their best interest, e- you know, and even per- potentially altruistically, right? Like, Oh, I think it's a good thing to stop climate change,
4: mm-hmm.
7: but
12: it's, it's all just like, Oh, what, do, what, what about me?
0: Mm-hmm.
12: <laughs> what, do, what do I have to, to fit in here?
0: Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, but,
12: yeah.
0: 100%. Well, look, Matthews, I appreciate you calling in. It was a good, t- a good chat.
12: Thanks. Yeah. You too.
0: All right, keep the faith, my friend. All right, Jam, maybe you can bring us home.
9: Yo, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Yo, Bree, like, this week been wild. It's been <clears> a bunch <throat> of shit, like, going on that I want to talk to you about. And there's a lot of shit going on in the news. But I got to ask you, first and foremost, have you seen the Love is Blind reunion? Woo!
0: Okay, I just got a second waiting. wind. You know I have!
9: I've been waiting. Give it to me, what you think. <laughs> give it to me, Bree.
0: <laughs> okay, I mean, I agree with the consensus view that Vanessa Lachey needs to aggressively check herself. Okay, Absolutely. let me just give a tiny bit, like a one-minute synopsis for those who don't know what we're talking about, so they're not completely lost. The premise of Love and Blind, it's a reality TV show where uh, individuals meet each other in cubes in boxes where they can't see each other but they kind of talk to each other through the wall Mm -hmm. they date for like two weeks they fall some of them fall in love and propose to each other and they don't get to see each other until after they've already made a commitment to marry each other then they subsequently live together they they they, you know go on a honeymoon they do all this stuff and then at Mm -hmm. the end of another like two or three four weeks they have to make the decision as to whether or not they're going to get married they make that decision while they're facing each other at the aisle, at their wedding, in front of all of their loved ones, yes or no. So it's very messy. Well, the additional messiness comes because they're all dating each other on the pods. It's like speed dating, but blind. And so when they come out of the pods and they see each other, sometimes they have regrets because, you know, there was maybe their second choice or their third choice. And now mm-hmm. that it's combined with what they look like and there's real life chemistry there's like messiness where people secretly want to break up each other's couples and stuff. And this year there was like, there were like an unprecedented number of love triangles Ooh, that on. existed. And it was like very, very messy. So the hosts of the show are Nick and Vanessa Lachey, Nick Lachey of 98 Degrees, Vanessa Manila, who was like a VH1 VJ and had like a smaller kind of career in the early aughts. Um, Nick barely talks uh, and Vanessa <laughs> is problematic. I mean, Vanessa, Nick sucks. I don't want to let him off the hook, but he didn't say much. Yeah. Vanessa is very problematic because she very clearly, in the reunion special, which was supposed to be live last week, but there was a technical malfunction, and so it just was posted later in the day on Netflix, which was, was its own scandal. But the reunion special, <laughs> in the reunion special, Jess, um, Jessica, the host, clearly had favorites incited with the women in the couples no matter what they said or did or how horrible they were and in this particular season basically all of the bad actors were women and some of the best nicest people were men but Vanessa Lachey like completely let the woman off the hook and grilled the men who had been the victim of some pretty like one woman basically started dating another one of the guys like, like, like our guy, what's his name? Mar- Marshall 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 yeah. was a real sweetie pie. This woman's, spent the whole time telling him he was soft, implying that he was gay, that he was sweet, that it was light in his loafers, all this stuff. And so <laughs> the day that they're all trying on their tuxedos to get ready for the wedding, she is secretly on a date with this other guy oh. from the pods who she didn't pick and make it out with him. And he has to be told by one of the other guys that his girl isn't with all the other women trying on wedding dresses, that she's just not there. And that's how he finds out that like he's not getting married. And so during the reunion, he brings up like, look, okay, what happened happened. That's fine. But like, I feel cheated in this experience because I never got that moment of yes or no at the altar because she didn't even make it that far. And moreover, his girl, his wife, his perspective, his fiance didn't even show up to the reunion to defend herself. Moreover, she didn't show up, but there was a video call with Vanessa that they did early, like the previous day where oh she goodness. was with the guy that she ended up cheating and going off with from the pods, And they're still together a year later, which is like nice for them and all. But Vanessa didn't ask her any hard questions about how she was treating uh, Marshall. She acted like they were girlfriends and they were kicking and she was like, I'm so happy for you and your love. And it's like, no, she's a cheater. Like she's the bad guy. She's the one that's been saying that this guy was basically gay because he was nice to her and she likes thugs and likes drama. <laughs> so, yeah, that was whack. Vanessa Lachey ruined it. Vanessa Lachey didn't ask. She she went hard on Arena, oh right?
9: Yeah,
0: because Arena, there were two girls that were acting like meat girls in the pod, Arena and the blonde wow. girl arena ended up leaving her man almost immediately she said he was gross and creepy and he was acting kind of creepy i'm not gonna <laughs> lie but she didn't have to be that mean about it and and the, her friend ended up being in a successful like couple like you know they, they made it through the show together at um, least
9: not saying successful.
0: well you know i mean they, they didn't immediately combust yeah, and yeah. even though they're really hard on Arena and held her to account about why she was so mean to her original partner, Paul, they didn't ask the blonde girl any of those hard questions, even though she was mm-hmm. right there next to her acting like a B-I-T-C-H.
9: <laughs>
0: so that was annoying. And then, like, she, she beats up on Paul. So the other mean girl whose name I'm blocking, what's her name? Micah. Micah. Okay, so Micah, the, the second mean girl that she didn't go hard on, Micah uh, was with this guy named Paul. Paul ends up saying no to Micah at the altar because reasons. I mean, like, they clearly just weren't a good fit. He didn't even need to come up with a reason. But apparently after he was walking away from the altar, he says something about how he didn't see Micah as being a good mother. And this was very hurtful to Micah. Now, I identify with that. I feel like that's a hurtful thing to say. I don't think that all that was necessary. And I think he should have found a different way to say it. Because I'm sure Micah will be a good mother if she's just not the kind of mother he wants for his children. And people can make those kind of decisions without, like, impugning people's Ability to be a mother, generally speaking, I just don't think that's the thing you should say about women yeah, unless they're like. He
9: can see her, he couldn't see her being a mother, that's right? That's to, his child, <laughs> to his child, to his child, he yeah. should
0: have said like, "I don't see us together. I don't see her right. having the kind of family I want to have." But like, right. it's not like there are plenty of people who are like weird parents. But I can obviously mm. see them being parents. Everyone's a parent, it's like, not that big a deal. Mm. Okay, so she was upset about that, and Vanessa Lachey decided to interrogate Paul about this. <laughs> <laughs> like justify why you have your feelings and, and paul was trying to be very delicate and political political about it but he acted like he you know like i agree that it's not the nicest thing to say but paul was really trying to soft pedal it and say how much he liked her and respected her it's just it wasn't for him and mm-hmm. vanessa just personalized everything so much yeah.
9: and like paul too paul did a good job of explaining what he meant and saying that like apologizing saying what i said then wasn't the right way like to um, you know, like to say it and everything that wasn't like uh, very accurate to what I meant, but like get that hurt. Sorry about it and everything, but Vanessa was just on a damn warpath. <laughs> like, it was
0: so weird. God smoke for
9: all the dudes, like it coming so at Marshall.
0: Weird. Like how Marshall's the Marshall the <laughs> sweetest. So okay, so Marshall smoke was okay. So this all like they wrapped filming like a year ago. So apparently, mm. in the intervening year, Marshall's fiance, whose name I'm also blocking, Jack, Jacqueline, Jackie. Jacqueline, Jackie. Jackie, Jackie Mm -hmm. apparently was real messy and shady on social media for the the past year after they wrapped and said some things about Marshall and implied that he had said something bigoted toward her. And after they talked around in circles forever, what came out was that apparently after she had accused him of being gay for like ever for again, just being a nice person, like just not being like a thug was her definition of why (laughs) he was supposed to be quote unquote sweet he said something about, well, you have a strong jaw. I could say some things about what you are. Now, should he have said that? Absolutely not. But the accusation on the internet was apparently that he had called her a uh, slur for a trans person. Mm
9: -hmm.
0: And he denied saying that. And he was like, you know, that's like he said, she said, I personally don't believe that he said that. But he had caught to saying something about her jawline. And he said he shouldn't have said that either, which he obviously shouldn't have said. But like Vanessa acted... Vanessa Lachey acted like that happened in a complete and total vacuum and that he just woke up one day and chose violence instead of calling people like secret men (laughs) and didn't address at all at any point that uh, Jackie had been calling him gay for like an entire season. We saw it all on camera. We saw him calling him gay the entire season no, they, you're no, they, sweet they, you're soft you're suit too <laughs> nice why won't you choke me up <laughs> yeah,
9: even in that context too of like when he said that to her didn't even bring up the context of saying that like they were like she was joking with him in the moment like trying to like jokingly call him gay and right. so he was thinking it's fair game like respond right. is not like turn he about just his fair out, play. Like a argument
0: and nothing like that like they were right. like joking with each other they were apparently joking yeah. around like quote-unquote joking around like whatever <laughs> so like it was a mess um it was mostly vanessa Lachey's fault that it was a mess and uh, i mean i enjoyed the messiness of it (laughs) but i would have liked more interrogation of micah less interrogation of paul and way more interrogation of jackie
9: it's so wild that no like there was no smoke at all for jackie like like none like in the i thought more people on the stage was going to bring up and say some shit like um what's his name like zach let's start mm-hmm. like intervene to try to defend paul and stuff but it was just like no yeah. smoke
0: zach so that ended respect. up being kind of like an mvp yes and then <laughs> zach tried to stand up for okay so let me just explain to you guys you this last
9: a struggle beer winning
0: right okay so we talked <laughs> about Irina, who was the mean girl number one who immediately like was like zach you look weird you're staring at me too hard you're creepy and i can't be around you she was mean it was a little bit true but it was mean and so she immediately dumped him so he the show let him go back to his second choice and ask if she would marry him this girl named bliss and bliss for some reason says yes so now wow. they're happily married uh, zach and bliss And so Zach and Bliss are sitting there on the, on the couch, now looking like one of the more mature couples among the bunch. And Zach's getting mad when Vanessa Lachey, who again is the host, and this is not about her and her feelings, won't (laughs) stop beating up on Paul. Paul's the one that ended up with the other mean girl, the blonde girl, Micah. Okay. So he (laughs) intervenes and like says something. He like whispers to Paul and Vanessa, who's messy as hell, is like, I see you whispering to Paul. What do you have to say? Can you say it to everyone? And so he's like, Yeah, I think you're being unfair. I think Paul is entitled to his feelings. He's entitled to not want to be with Micah. You know, there's stuff that you guys don't see. You don't know he's my friend. Da 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 da. Like he probably should have stayed out of it, but like he was perfectly entitled to say what he had to say. And then Vanessa acts like, like he just slapped her in the face you asked him what he thought what his feelings were why are you going to be offended now that he told you the truth and by the way jam we haven't even gotten to how creepy vanessa was asking everybody about their procreation plans
9: exactly wild freaking crazy she
0: she was more invasive than a republican legislator was about to stick a thermometer (laughs) up these women's hoo has to tell if they're ovulating or not who's going to give me a Baby, who's gonna be the first Love Is Blind baby? When's the last time you menstruated? You know, L- let me check your period app. It was craziness. It was wild. And then they, they wait, wait, wait. They charted out martiz Okay, so there was this oh incredible. God, yes, I'm sorry, I gotta call on him the a break. fuck boy. <laughs> Look, Jam, marty's from last season, the biggest loser of the last season, who was so, he treated this girl so person. poorly in the last season. He did not end up with his partner in the last season, but they trotted him out in this little video segment as a success oh story God. because he had some love child with some woman who knows who she is in the last year. <laughs> Popped oh my up God. with this little baby talking about, don't you want one of these? Honey, I don't know that you want one of those. <laughs> oh, my
9: God. But you got like, one now. You- you him out with that weak ass man, but talking about him and his kid. I'm like, yo, like, what is going on in this
0: reunion? <laughs> I cannot believe this. oh It was so strange, Jam. <laughs> she is so weird, and then she kept. She's like, I want a fourth kid, and Nicholas is like, really? Aren't we like fifty? It was so Call Don weird. Call down
9: Lemon Call down lemon on him. Pass the. <laughs> Don Lemon needs to hear about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jim, I'm glad I called on you because this is a great oh thing God. to end on. I'm sorry um. to everybody who doesn't care about this, but we had to have it out.
5: <laughs> yes, like
9: I seen you, I seen you tweet like, see, like I'm late. I just watched the the reunion uh, last night. And I had mm. seen that you had tweeted Team Marsh. So I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yes! Like my 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 week, couple of weeks have been so busy. I like doing like extra school stuff now, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I gotta get on this calling. that's try to talk to Bree about Love Is Blind because <laughs> I know she's seen it, and I'm, I need I need to hear these thoughts. <laughs>
0: I was waiting in the queue like everybody else, trying to watch it live. I was ready to go.
9: Oh my god. <laughs> he- Hilarious. Like,
0: <laughs> like, like why why the
9: whole fuck did they try to do it live anyway? Like, oh like, who, we who animated for this.
3: Jam, we
0: haven't we didn't even talk about um Kwame and that oh crazy broad
9: Kwame, I don't wanna be together.
0: <laughs> Yo. Th- this was the other than they gaslight. So this this, this this last couple was this this guy named Kwame and this blonde chick whose name I've forgotten. What was her name?
9: Oh uh I can't think of her name right now let's just yeah, call her
0: uh amy just until we I, I need to get
9: name. back up i can't think of her name right
0: now it, it's not it's not amy but we're just gonna call her amy for the sake of this conversation Which form is this name? so kwame in the pods connected with the mean blonde girl micah who we've been talking about mm-hmm. but micah told cut it off with kwame in the pods and chose paul over kwame and so kwame ended up proposing to his second choice Amy, whose name is not Amy, but it'll come to me in a second. Yeah. So when they get out of the pods, there's this awkwardness. They have this like mixer where they're all together. And Kwame is like basically huddled oh, up in the wow. pool with Micah for like an hour. <laughs> while while Amy's standing there like, what are you doing? Like, you're my man. Like, it's very humiliating for her. He was very inappropriate. Mm-hmm. They clearly had way more chemistry with each other than Kwame and Amy did. And they mm-hmm. both realized that once they were out of the pods, mm-hmm. Amy. Kind of handle it sort of maturely and like got, yeah. and they got through it. I will give her credit for that because I would have made a scene. Very However, much. over the course of the season, it became clear that Amy was like very, very, very into Kwame. And every mm-hmm. time she asked him, like, well, do you love me? And oh, our lives are going to be so wonderful together. And like staring at him with dreamy eyes, he was shifty and uncomfortable and obviously wasn't meeting her energy. Mm hmm. And he and she seemed to not notice. But the cameraman Chelsea, kept
9: her name too. Chelsea.
0: Chelsea, that's right. That's Chelsea. So Chelsea would like be like Lovey Dovey and then she would walk away and the cameraman would stay on Kwame and Kwame would get this stressed as hell look on his face. <laughs> the second Chelsea walked away. And I really thought he was going to say no at the altar I was really? so shocked when he said yes Because also he comes from a religious like West African family And his mom was mm. not here for it And like didn't have her approval And he cares a lot what she thinks And there was like religion and all of this like Wanted them to be chaste and virgins And all this stuff that they were mm. not obviously doing So then at the reunion Vanessa Like the audience reaction The fan reaction has been Like he's a hostage Kwame doesn't really want to be in this <laughs> But in, but instead of asking Kwame about why it was that he behaved the way he behaved on camera and to explain why it was that it seemed like he wasn't interested in Chelsea during the show, even though they're still married a year later, Vanessa, Vanessa asked questions like, explain to the audience why your love is real and why they should never have doubted you in the first place. Like, uh, <laughs> objection leading. no no, ask him kwame in this scene on this day chelsea said to you after your wedding day oh i'm your wife and you're and and, no you're my husband and i'm your and you refuse to say you're my wife why was it so hard for you to say moments after you got Mm. married she's your wife like there were all these very specific moments on the show where he clearly demonstrated hesitancy and instead of asking him about that she just let him gaslight us all into acting like they had a perfect relationship and there were no problems
9: Mm.
0: Not to mention, there was all this stuff that didn't really come out on the reunion. You just see some of the discourse about how apparently he told them originally not to call him Kwame. He wanted to go by mm-hmm. like some Alex. Western name, and
3: yeah, he said Alex. it wasn't mm-hmm. because
0: he was trying to pretend to be white in the pods, but because he wanted like Wise. race not to be a part of it and for people to just love who they loved because they loved them. But everyone was accusing him of like hating his culture, and I mean that's neither here nor there. I'm not trying to wing in on that, but there was a lot of dishonesty.
9: In that, <laughs> oh my god this has been every bit <laughs> of cathartic as, <laughs> as my little black heart thought it was going to be <laughs> and like i just want to ask you one more thing before i get off here because it's getting late but i feel like you are partic- particularly you know inclined to be able to answer this question so my wife and i we've had we have like, like a disagreement and the disagreement is about um, whitney houston What song do you think she went harder on? Mm. Is it? Is it? Um. I I uh, have nothing.
0: I have nothing. Is the answer that I was going to give before you prompted me? But go ahead. What's the alternative? That's why you, my nigga, (laughs) breathe.
4: That's what
0: I was saying.
9: (laughs) (laughs) It was that, or I will always love you, and I said, or I have nothing. I have nothing. So she came, she left, she came back again. I have nothing.
0: (sighs) First of all, let me tell you about I have nothing there are like three key changes up in there yes okay yes i have nothing is one of the most underrated whitney houston songs i have nothing is an incredibly hard song first Yo, of all black take, ass my on it. Hand. take me she 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 brings you in like a little bird on her palm she says Great. you know I, i'll never change my colors for you and then she says there's like three here, let me let me okay, oh, I gotta God. say this. I gotta say don't this. not let me close. One more do let me tell you. On, I don't wanna hurt. Let me tell you, let me tell you. Come on, so I I'm gonna bring Taylor Swift into this for a second. And you're gonna you're gonna understand why in a second.
9: Okay. Wild turn, but I'm here. Let, let's okay.
0: Go. Taylor Swift, no shade, but no vocal talent whatsoever. This is not about <laughs> this is not about her vocal talent. This is <laughs> not about her talent as a performer, as a you dancer, or anything. Oh, no shade. God. I like her like I like her like I like James Taylor. It's not because he can <laughs> sing real good. But it's because she is a good songwriter. Like James You're Taylor. She is a great songwriter. With
9: Taylor Swift, though. <laughs> this, I don't. have this theory like
0: no one's trying to defend Bob Dylan for his vocal talent. Some people aren't there for the vocals and that's fine. True, okay. True, true. But the thing about Taylor Swift and why her songs are so good is because she has a classic songwriting sensibility. Where she mm-hmm. doesn't do this thing that all these lazy modern writers do where they put like C plus effort into a chorus, mm-hmm. F effort, effort into the verses, and there's like no bridge to be found. It's just A, exactly. B, A, B, A, B. Taylor Swift will write you a B plus A minus verse, an mm-hmm. A plus chorus, and she just goes the extra effort and gives you a bridge that is off the charts there are at least three distinct melody sections in her songs, which means it's a rock and ride from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And I Have Nothing is one of those classic songs where you have... You know, the take my hand, take me for who I am, Mm -hmm. melody. And then you have your, I don't really want to look very much further. It's a completely Uh different melody. And then you have your, don't, I don't let me hold on my door. And then Mm -hmm. on top of that, you get two, three, two or three key changes of, I don't want to hurt anymore. Escalating, escalating, Mm -hmm. escalating into the end of the song. And that is like a Christian, like So beautifully There's so much emotional catharsis in that song It's such a fun one to holler at karaoke It is an amazing piece of writing Let me tell you A couple years ago I was dating this guy And we did not have that much in common I don't understand exactly what was going on with us there were, like we would hang out, he, would he kept asking me, me out, him. but like, he would just like not make a move, but that's from, like neither here nor there. What <laughs> we would do in lieu of him making a move is we would spend hours up all night. He was like a music guy
3: mm-hmm. and we
0: would listen to music and he would play me a track and I would play him a track and he would play me a track and I would play me a track. And we would talk about music and just love music together all night.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And this was one of the ones that I was like, I'm playing this for you. Because like you think you're a music guy, but no one pays enough attention to this song, and so th- I had nothing. Kind of became like our song. We had this like playlist that we put together of like the hits from this one magical night of music playing, mm-hmm. and like it, we we sat there we listened to it like five times in a row because <laughs> it just it that the song has that kind of sauce.
9: Yes, it's dr- it's dripping in it. Like yes, I, I was trying to explain all. Like, I like look. Like Whitney was doing so much vocal work in that song, like fucking effortless. effortless. Yes, like just the, the crescendo and then come kind of like right back, like down with it, so quick and smooth and everything. Like she can will fucking like belt for like two whole minutes, then immediately go to a damn whisper at the end of the yep. song. Yeah, it's, it's just fucking like magical you know i will always love you classic song great but i have nothing Is like it's it's the creme de la creme like, i very much agree what the fuck it is
0: i also saw the bodyguard for the first time in my whole life like a month ago really? and both of those songs are in the bodyguard mm-hmm. i did not realize that i had nothing was from the soundtrack of the bodyguard
9: that's back and, when soundtracks used to slap you know
0: yes like, i mean that one having both of those is crazy but i i saw like a it obviously, wasn't a VH1 behind the music because those don't exist anymore. But I was watching something along those lines <laughs> that was talking about the movie The Bodyguard. And apparently, oh, no, I was watching the Whitney Houston movie. That's what I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in that movie, they explained that um, if it wasn't in the movie, it was looking like something about the movie. But they explained that when they were making The Bodyguard, they felt like they didn't have a song for Whitney that helped you as a viewer understand her superpower. Uh, her superstardom in the context of the movie Mm
4: -hmm. and that's
0: why they they took the dolly parton song and had her sing i will always love you because they felt like the songs they had already weren't enough when Mm -hmm. i watched the movie and realized that i have nothing was already in the movie i was like i mean i love dolly (laughs) parton and i love i will always love you but they honestly didn't need all that because i have nothing is a banger
9: very much so very fucking much so why once again, this has been cathartic for my little black ass heart. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I'm gonna like hop off. But I do want to tell you, check your DM on Twitter. I know I I've been I so neglectful of you. Stuff. I sent you something very like very important.
0: Okay, like, I'm gonna get on stuff. it. I really want to play you out with either more Luther or obviously I have nothing. But my computer died, so I have to play you <laughs> out with our regular outro song but I will definitely get I Have Nothing on a track coming up and everybody should go and listen to it on your own time because yes. Jam and I are not lying about the power of this song
9: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not like I said please check out Twitter It's some real shit like I said some real like union shit that like, I, sent, I sent to you but keep the faith have a good night
0: <laughs> have a good night Jam thank you for this this has been great thank you to all of you this has been a wonderful episode I feel decompressed I'm about to go close the last quarter of my, exor- no, not my exercise ring, my calorie ring, my red ring, and collapse into bed. You guys have been great. Keep the faith.
13: wish I had a pilot and a podcast. wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, Stats. wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp I wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah. I wish I was a comedian Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land I wish this well had water in it These kids are stealing all my pennies Focused on my wealth You can help me wish but I would rather wish the help It's like like. I wish I wish and every time we dobbin' it feels just like this, like this. Yeah. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this I wish, I wish, that every time we love it, it feels just like this It feels just like this, it feels like this. I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming scheme Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew up my line with me I wish that I could spread my wings huh? I wish that I had seven limbs yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything And laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets yeah. I wish I was an astronaut I wish I knew more classic rock. Focused on myself You can help me wish But I would rather wish for how it's like, it's like I wish, I wish every time we love And it, it feels just like this I wish, I wish every time we do it It feels just like this I wish, I wish every time we move and it, it feels just like this it Feels just like this Like this, it's just it's like Like on a donkey, we would turn some dumb shit into something I got everybody wild in our circumference, big assumptions, so they nothing new Fuck a mine, you, I've been chewing through these rounds.